then mm-hmm. we grew up playing D and D together. Nice, right? And so every Tuesday, we would boot up Icewind Dale, and we went through the whole game together. Right? Awesome. And it was it was great. I mean, it was did like, you actually get through the whole game? Yeah. yeah. Wow, you are maybe the only people in the world. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran RPG designer Josh Sawyer, best known for his work on Icewind Dale, Fallout New Vegas, and Pillars of Eternity. This episode was recorded March 24th, 2018, and it was engineered by Michael Hermes. All right, so... So what I usually like to start with is, what's the very first video game that you remember? That I remember? Yeah. Adventure on the Atari 2600. Okay. That sounds like a classic choice for you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Did you guys guys have one? An Atari? Yeah. um, I'm actually surprised because my family was, I don't want to make it sound, I don't want to exaggerate and make it sound like this is the Dust Bowl or anything. Okay. We we didn't have a lot of money. Okay. And, um, but we did get an Atari 2600. And how, do you know how your parents made that choice or like, I actually don't. Um, now that I think about it, I should probably ask them because it was, a. I mean, I, I was very young when we got it. And so yeah. I, I had no conception of how wealthy or not wealthy right. we were, yeah. how expensive an Atari 2600 was. Um, I mean, for all I know, it might've actually been a gift for my grandparents, but my brother yeah. and I played it. Um, but I wound up playing it more than my brother did. Okay. Um, my brother is more interested in sports, um, but he thought, I mean, he thought video games were cool, but I wound up really playing it a lot more and, uh, adventure and pitfall were the two big ones. We didn't have a lot of games because the games are also expensive. Right. 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 So, uh, yeah. Is it like you had games, but like adventure is the one that stood out to you? We had a few games. We had, I mean, we had like combat classic, um, we had pitfall, (laughs) we had drag racer, Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, adventure is the one that really sticks out. So what do you remember about adventure? Like, how does it stick out to you? Um, I mean, I remember, you know, the feeling of the duck dragons, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember all the weird, I don't know if you'd necessarily call them physics bugs, but the weird, like sort of bumping exploits that existed in the game. Um, how you could kind of hack your way across like various parts of the map. Um, I remember the weird, uh, sort of strategies to how you gripped the arrow. Okay. I don't know if you remember Adventure. Mm-hmm. So Adventure had a sword that really looked like a, if I recall correctly, like a yellow left pointing arrow. Okay. <clears throat> and when you uh, picked it up, when you came into contact with it, it would stick to you wherever you touched it. Oh, okay. And it's uh, your ability to kill a dragon was all based on, like if it hit the arrow before it hit you, okay. it would die. Okay. And so, so there was you, this there's this strat to like I want to touch the arrow right at the edge of it, right? So that it sticks as far as away far from him from possible. possible. Okay. And so there were all these like kind of weird strats. So it wasn't like, like a hitbox; it was literally wherever it touched your character. Um, like, like yeah. You weren't, you weren't just a rectangle or something. Well, you were a square. You were a square. But it would it would like basically there was a some sort of boundary around you, and wherever you contacted it, it was like okay, now I'm stuck to you here. Right. And you could drop it and then repick it up by touching it again. Okay. Um. So I remember all that finagling of that. Um. I also remember thinking it was really cool and I finally beat it. And I was, I remember being five years old and um, I like, 
I thought it was so great that I'd beaten it. And so I called in like a bunch of my parents' friends to show okay. them how I, how I could beat it. <laughs> uh, but that time I didn't beat it. I died oh, and I got really upset and was uh, being a huge baby and everyone made fun of me and I ran away. <laughs> I ran upstairs. Oh dear. But yeah, adventure. It was a good one. Okay. Cool. Well, that seems very appropriate. Um, <laughs> did you, uh, so what, did you play more games after that? Or like, what uh, What did you get into? Yeah, I mean, so the 2600, um, you know, I played for a while. I played Pitfall. I played a lot of those other games. And I, I really wanted a PC of some sort. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was in the early 80s. So you want like an Apple or a Commodore or whatever? Something, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I just didn't have, I remember my family didn't have money for that. Yeah. And they were expensive back then. They don't sound, but if you look at the inflation. Oh yeah, they're, like, they're pretty they're, pricey. Yeah. Um, and I had, but I had friends who uh, did have uh, Commodores mm -hmm. or um, actually, I think the other, now that I think about it, so now I have to like, Right. Sort back through like 30, well, I mean, 40, 42 years, but 30 right. years until this point um, where I remember the public school had Apple IIs. They had Apple IIEs right. and later had Apple IIGSs. And so I'd play games there. But then I also had friends who had one who had an IBM PC, um, a couple of others who had Commodores, mm -hmm. uh, one who had an Amiga, one who was oh, like wow, pretty, okay. pretty, pretty yep. fancy. Yep. And... Um, I remember I'd play like Dark Tower, I'd play Conan the Barbarian on the Apple II, mm -hmm. um, Oregon Trail. Uh, and then my friend who had an IBM PC, he was playing Wizardry 1, okay. Proving Ground of the Mad Overlord. Right. And he was also playing, he had Ultima 1, 2, and then Exodus. And I'd go over and hang out at his house and I wouldn't play, but mm -hmm. I would like... I was just as enthusiastic, like sitting watching, with him and yeah. watching him play and like talking about it. And then from there, we got into uh, playing basic and expert D&D. &D, okay. And sure. then it sort of carried on from there. Right. Okay, cool. So you were like kind of attracted to like the role playing game side of things? Yeah, like, I really, really I really like the, the fantasy vibe. Um, you know, and it, it really actually started with computer games first. It started with... Uh, wizardry and the ultimas and things like that mm -hmm. and then went into basic and expert tabletop D&D and at first I was playing with my um, you know guys in my class right. who were about my age and then actually the really and this would have been like the late grade school basically like, yeah this was this was like I think I started playing basic and stuff like that maybe when I was in fourth grade mm -hmm. so this was like 83 84 maybe right. Um, and then the real revelation, I was at, uh, my family moved into the town, uh, Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, which okay. is like population 11,000. Right. And, um, there was a public library and I went to mm -hmm. the public library and they had a Commodore 64. Okay. And I didn't really know much about Commodores, but one day I saw an older kid, um, playing a game that had like much, uh, more colors. Mm -hmm. It, it had like animated graphics right. and like. He was, I think he had like headphones and I heard like music. I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. And it was, was Bard's it, Tale. It was Bard's Tale, yeah. I was yeah it, was the, it was the first Bard's Tale on <laughs> yeah. the Commodore 64. And I was like, oh my God. And like, I, you know, I remember looking at all the, um, you know, like the Sorcerer site and the Major mm -hmm. Levitation, all those icons, icons yep. animated. And uh, I was just like, oh my God, this is so incredible. Um, and I struck up, struck up a friendship with that older kid. Yeah. And, you know, we started talking about D&D &D and he's, and I was like, oh, yeah, I play basic and expert with my friend. And he was like, mm -hmm. oh, well, my friends and I, and they were in high school, like mm -hmm. we play um, 
we play advanced D&D. And I was like, I don't even know what that <laughs> is. And because um, again, I mean, this is like the early 80s or mid 80s yeah. at this point. And um, in an unlikely sort of way, like, I mean, Tony, his name was Tony Unati and he was, uh, he was quite a bit older than me, but um, he had no problem sort of like befriending me. Along, right? yeah. And uh, and I sat in with his friends who also were really cool with this quite a bit younger kid being right. with them. And uh, I started playing AD&D with him, so. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So you started out playing as, you know, you're, you're doing the character. One of them was DMing it, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, and then I, you know, I started talking to my other circle of friends mm-hmm. about AD&D, and then we all started getting into AD&D. And it was getting into the late 80s. We all played a lot of first and second, and then second edition came out. We were playing second edition, first edition AD&D. Um, the gold box games were huge for us. And sure. that, was, that was another one, like, both with my friend Tony and also my friend Jody, uh, a few other guys. Like uh, we didn't have cars. We were we were in high school in a in a farm town basically, and I lived out in the country. But we would call each other at night, and we would both just we would basically just talk to each other while we were individually playing like Pool of Radiance mm. or Curse of the Azure Bonds, and just talking about like, oh dude, I just saw this, and I don't know, like it just seemed like a totally normal thing because we weren't doing anything else. Um, yep. And so we would do that throughout the week. And then on weekends, we'd get together and like have sleepovers and play D&D and stuff like that. Um, but we played almost all those gold box games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... For D&D, would you... Oh, and I should say, I did get... Finally, I got a Commodore 128. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> like, kind of weird middle child or whatever. Yeah, it was a very weird thing, but it ran. I mean, it emulated the C64. Yeah, yeah I mean, it worked well, obviously. It was just kind of like Harvey's, like, very people people would support the yeah. 128 mode, right? Yeah, 80, so. 80 characters yeah, across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I played in that. That's when I was like, oh, cool. I can, but I was honestly, I was like pirating those games mm-hmm. at the time because my family's poor and like, you know, as poor enough to not get like double sided discs. I would do the trick where you take a hole punch and you. Oh, hole, yep. Yep. Yeah, I, you, I had one of those. Yep. Yeah. You just you, <laughs> you hole punch the opposite side. Well, I would, I would take two discs and I would line them up and I would trace uh-huh. and then I would hole punch right there and then yep. I would copy in the other side. And that's such a weird thing. It's think, very weird. All it was, it was, they were all double sided, but they just didn't work unless you punch them. Yeah, because they they didn't have access to read through that. Yeah, but was that just like I mean, when they manufactured them, it must have been like trivial to like just punch it. They just wanted to probably charge more. I don't know. They just yeah. wanted the <laughs> price step or whatever the thing is called, price delineate, whatever. What's that term? But right. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, I totally remember like buying those like hole punch things to like <laughs> like this is great. I got <laughs> twice as many discs. Um, but yeah, so I played, uh, you know, like I played, did you, did you play like adventure construction set or any of those? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, I think I, I think I, was there a Bard's Tale construction set? There was eventually, but it wasn't until like 90 or 91 actually. I did. I did play around with that. I played around with that. I played around with, um, Forgotten Realms Unlimited Adventures, which was the construction set following the gold box games. Okay. How also, far did you get? Like, would you would you build something? Or? Oh, I mean, I built I built little I built little things. Like, I you know, you know, typical modder. Like, you know, yeah, I like, yeah, sort yeah. of giving up on your, you know, like whatever. But um, you know, enough to just like I made my own sprites mm-hmm. uh, for characters, and you know, it's all just goofing around basically in Forgotten Realms uh, Unlimited Adventures, which I also did a lot of sector editing. Um, okay. <laughs> on Bard's Tale. Okay. So my friend Tony was into computer science. And um, he was, uh, he used copy to, this program called copy to plus, which was primarily used to pirate (laughs) games back in the day, but it also had a built-in sector editor. Right. So he had gone through and he had by 
uh, just process of trial trial and error. Mm -hmm. He had entered uh, hex codes for every item in Bard's Tale, right. and he indexed them all. He wrote them all out, and so we had a list of like, oh, we can give our characters these stats. Okay, we can give our because all the all the items were so he had, stored by hex. He had all the codes for how the the files were saved. So you would you would open that up and you'd look at the raw data. Yeah, and, and we could also edit we could also edit them. So we would yeah, sector right. edit and say like, okay, you have item FF, which right. by the way is Specter Snare, which is the most the most yeah. powerful item. So yeah. we you know we wrote down what all those were, and then we would just hack our characters. We'd give them more experience points. Um, of course, sometimes we were actually adding invalid hex values, and mm, the game would freak game. out. And, yeah, yeah. And eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that is that how you play through the game, or like had you kind of played through it, and now you're just messing with it? Uh, that that is more like how we messed around with it. But yeah. there was one there was one thing that we basically just cheated our way around because it was getting really frustrating when um, we were in Mangar's castle, which mm -hmm. is the very end of Bard's Tale One. Right. There's a uh, there's a uh, puzzle really which is a, a phrase that's a series of words yeah and we couldn't find like two of the words and it was yeah. just getting really tiresome and so we went into the sector editor and found each of the words oh wow which which the fr full phrase was lie with passion and be forever damned okay and um we were just like oh, we're done with this <laughs> <laughs> wow. but I, I, I just got the hint book i think like is what i had and uh you know like i did as much of it as i could on my own but at some point like yeah <laughs> bard's tale 2 you bard's tale 2 was crazy yeah that game was because, yes, and and the hint book was uh, the hint book was actually really interesting because it was sort of like written as from the perspective of a guy who was running this like dream journey emporium where these adventurers came in and went on this mystical journey to see like basically their future and it was okay. sort of like they were adventuring through Bard's Tale too, but only like in a dream state, not in reality. Okay. And, and the narrator like went along as like the silent observer and was writing down everything that they were doing. It was, it was kind of a neat thing. So but this is what could, this is what you could do basically. Right? Well, yeah. And it, and, and it was, uh, and it, and it had all the details and, and the, the snares of death in each of the dungeons for the pieces of the rod were ludicrously hard. And so like, I don't think any of us felt bad about using the hint book for that because yeah. we're just like, we're never going to figure this out. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those games, Marshall 2, I look back at and I kind of think like, did they, they think this was good design like what were they tr i mean like did they think this through i mean like i don't know i mean we could go ask brian yeah. he's probably still around yeah um i mean i know i get that like you kind of those games you just well you make the sequel you make more stuff you make it harder and like whatnot but like barcel one was like in a pretty good sweet spot of like you know it was like it was doable right? it was and i feel like in some ways bard's tale 3 went back mm -hmm. in in terms of like it it eased off whether intentionally or not it eased off on the the really tricky stuff. Um, it did throw some weird curveballs at you, though. Like there were places where, because you could all you could always just cast a spell from a like a prompt, basically. Um, there were things where you'd get to obstacles where, and obviously this wasn't tutorialized. This is the mid '80s or late '80s, and so like I remember in um in one of the dimensions in Bard's Tale Three, there's like a a series of obstacles where you come up to it and you actually have to cast a spell. Just you're standing there. It's not like you're in combat. You just have to like cast a spell that normally you do not cast just walking around. Right. Um, like a spell to like melt, you know, you're gonna cast like, you know, burning hands or whatever, um, basically to like melt the 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 wall. Right. And it was just it wasn't intuitive at all. But then once you were told it, then you started thinking about like, oh, maybe other things in the world work this way. Yeah. So even though it was a little difficult to intuit because it wasn't tutorialized anywhere or done for a while. Um, I feel like it was still easier than Parts Tale 2's Snares of Death. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, when it came out on the iPad about four years ago, or whatever, I actually went back and like started oh started over again, and I was surprised how well the game held up. Like mm-hmm. you know, it like it kept my attention. I I mean, I didn't make it all the way through again. I mean, I made I think I probably stopped somewhere with the Harkins Castle. Is that what that was called? In Bartsdale One. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've stopped about halfway through there, but like up through there, like it like it it made it wasn't just like. It maintained a nice balance of like you're always kind of on the edge, you know. Like you could, you could, I guess you could grind a little if you wanted to, but like it, like the balance was really good, and like mm-hmm. you know the yeah. If you did things in the the sort of intended order, mm-hmm. um, it was pretty manageable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think fan scars is where like the difficulty kind of bumps up, and right. then once you and yeah. then once you get to mangars, that's where it starts it's to get like, really, really punishing. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> I remember what we did basically was, and I have I did we did this so much that it's ingrained in my brain. The you go into Harkins Castle and there's that room with the four hundred three hundred and ninety six. Uh, that's actually in berserkers. That's actually in the catacombs. It's in the catacombs. Okay. Yeah, I do. What I remember is like the teleport because it would be like sixteen over ten. Yep. APAR. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> so those coordinates, I, I, I've like I've memorized them. Sixteen nine or something. Six, like that. I thought it was sixteen ten two. That's my memory. Yeah, it, it very well maybe. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's been a long time. And so we would just repeat that. Yeah, that's how you grind over and over again. It was like, oh, this is the best <laughs> way to grind ever. And now you know, looking back, as soon as you get a sorcerer with mind blade. Yep, 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 <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, it's funny how so many people on their own. <laughs> who played that game, you know, without talking, this was before the internet, obviously. Like, yeah. It's just like, they, everyone figured that out. But, um, yeah. Well, and all those acronyms stay with you too. Like, yep. um, I was kind of joking around with Brian Fargo. We were at, uh, I don't know, it was GDC a couple of years ago and he was, you know, Bartstail, the new Bartstail was announced and uh, we were just kind of joking around and I was like listing off all the, all the spells that I still remember. Um, and it was, you know, it was like dozens of these spells that yep. just, cause you, you manually you type them, them in. The time. Yep, yep. Um, it's right. like, it's, it's like wizardry people remembering Mahalito and Tilt Await and all that other stuff. Yeah. Like Arco and uh, what was it? What was Yabara Shield? Was that? YMCA. 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 I was like, <laughs> YMCA. Was it, I was, like, I was thinking, was it really YMCA? Did they really do that? M-A-L-E, yeah, Major Levitation, yep. S-O-S-I, Sorcerer's Side. Yep, yep. <laughs> yep. Levy, um, Classics. And then M- <laughs> MIBL. Yep. MIJ. By the way, I mean, I put Mind Blades into Pillars of Eternity as an homage. Okay. Because of the cipher. Right. I was like, I gotta, gotta yeah, put yeah, the yeah. Mind Blades in. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, so, did you, so when you were doing DD, did you start like DMing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, initially, it wasn't something I was super drawn to. Like, I, I just, like, when I was basic and expert. And when I was playing with uh, Tony and, and his friends, um, because I was the, the younger guy. And I wasn't familiar with, you know, the settings outside of just what was in the, the blue books and the, the red books, the basic and expert books. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I didn't really know much about it. And then um, we... But I, you, you guys would play the, the modules? No, we actually, we, we, we would almost always do our own stuff. Okay. And that's actually something that um, I'm going to do a little kids these days rant. <laughs> something that's weird. Although, actually, I don't know if it's even kids these days. I think it's old men like me these days. Um, so fifth edition, I guess, fifth edition D&D is uh, very popular, which is cool. Um, but one of the things that's very popular about it is that they sell hardcover modules. Okay. And they're, they sell really well, mm-hmm. which is a little disappointing to me because like, I, I basically don't like running modules because the, one of the big appeals for being a DM to me is making a bunch of crap up. Yep. Um, and improvising and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I was, I was talking about this with some of the guys at, at work who play, uh, fifth edition 
a lot. And I was like, what is up with this? This Because uh, a lot of them were using the modules too. And I'm like, what's the appeal? And they're like, just time. Right. They're sure. like, there's so much prep time involved in, yep. in being a DM. And it's it's nice to, if it's a if it's a well-made module, which is the key thing. Sure. Like if it's a crappy module, then it's it's just, it's not fun. But if it's a well-made module, it um, can give the DM all the tools they need to run something fun, but enough room to still improvise and make insert their own stuff wherever they want. So. Right. I get it, but yeah, back in the day, we pretty much just ran all of our own stuff. We'd we'd get the source books. Mm-hmm. It was pretty rare that we'd go so far as to start world, like in high school is when I started doing my own world building. Right. But we would run Forgotten Realms, or we'd run Greyhawk, or Dragonlance, and you know, we would absorb, and this is something actually that I had to sort of step back from and realize how, how sort of warped it was. Like, um, uh, on Pillars of Eternity, a lot of folks complained about the density of the lore. Yes, and and it wasn't it was an intentional choice, but it's a kind of an asinine one. But it's like my experience. I remember so my grandmother, my mom would give my grandma a list of especially RPG things that I wanted. Okay, and for Christmas, and my grandma would usually get me those things. Right, and so I very distinctly remember getting the Greyhawk boxed set. Yeah. And the Forgotten Realms box set, first edition, and I would basically the rest of Christmas Day mm-hmm. was gone. Right. I would open those, and I would open the Cyclopedia of the Realms, right. and I would or the um, the uh, Greyhawk book and all those heraldry, and I would start memorizing all the heraldry. I would read every entry for every god, every nation, theocracy of the pale, kingdom of Ayus, like yeah, all yeah, the yeah. all these things, uh, Nyrond, and I would I would just absorb all of that stuff and my process of learning about a campaign setting wasn't through the organic experience of playing it it was getting source books uh-huh. and just sucking up relentless child like yeah just, just sucking it all up and then like and what's what's sort of crazy is i realized that, that that's what i did because uh, a couple of years ago bobby null one of uh one of our designer designers at obsidian mm-hmm. he um he was running a 3-5 game in Greyhawk and I needed to make a character and I just literally just dredged it out of like nothing because I remembered all of the stuff that I absorbed. Right. And and that's what I like is like, it wasn't just about the character being from this place, but I remembered the relationship of this country with this other country and like the deities that they worshiped in this country versus that and like how those relationships played out. Um, and so that was like my process of like learning about a setting before I even made a character. Right. And that's not how normal people like, <laughs> no. especially for a CRPG, how they look at things. Yeah. And so I really realized like, oh man, we got, I got to, that's a really silly assumption that I got to step back from. Right. And like, I have to allow people. You kinda, did you kind of emotionally want people to experience what you would experience basically? Or like, um, I, it wasn't or subconsciously. I don't know. It wasn't. I mean, it was, it was partially subconsciously and also consciously. Like, I mean, the infinity engine games were also very large, large. Sure. Dense. And, and I, um, you know, although I think that there are some fans who will say that, you know, the spirit of the Infinity Engine games was lost in Pillars, um, we were trying to still capture those uh, same things. Um, and so dumping a bunch of lore is like, that's certainly within the spirit of what those games did. Yeah. Um, but in retrospect, like, they're, like Tyranny, um, another game that Obsidian yep. made, uh, they made a great improvement by using lore highlight links. So for people who, okay. who want to gain all the backstory and all that stuff, they can do it. But if we're if we're better about how we introduce concepts to the player, they're just not inundated with this deluge of information. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I felt pretty overwhelmed when I was building my character and pillars. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. And, like, you know, I'm, I'm mostly at that point still looking at it mechanically. I mean, I, I, I don't really even like the... I mean, this is just kind of so inherent to RPGs that it's just how it goes. But, like, it's always a stressful experience to make a bunch of choices about your character before you've ever even yeah. experienced the game, right? Like, yeah. that's a classic dilemma right, yes. for RPGs and so but then on top of it that there's like this bunch of lore <laughs> that, that's like attached <laughs> to each one of these choices and at some point I was just like I don't I don't know I just, I just gotta get through this you know, like, yeah. I, just, I mean at some point I just I just chose it like um, uh, intuitively which yeah. I guess is like probably a pretty good way to go right and yeah uh, I, um, but yeah <laughs> it's it's a tricky thing because I remember um uh, you know, I think Jeff Vogel wrote up a pretty big critique about the way text is used at the beginning of Pillars. Right. And I think some of it was was very fair. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, like I said, there's a there's a balancing act because if it becomes too pared down, if it becomes too streamlined, the feeling is gone. Yep. The the, the experience is kind of dulled in a way that um, it subtracts. And so I wanted to try it. And I think with Deadfire, we have a better balance. Um, it's not about making everybody happy, but it's about saying like, okay, are, are the people who are, you know, the really hardcore fans still going to really enjoy and appreciate this? And also as someone who wants to enjoy this and is coming to it fresh and new, are they going to be able to get into it or are they going to hit a, a brick wall that they bounce off of? And right. so it's trying to kind of like mediate those expectations okay how are you trying to, i mean you mentioned the links is there mm -hmm. other stuff you're doing functionally that's like yeah there's um yeah. the way you stru just structure things or um structurally i don't think a whole lot of things change i think that like so i went through and i pared down um i pared down a lot of our character creation text to mm -hmm. just be more concise right um like i said we have cyclopedia entries if you want to go like way in depth with detail about a lot of stuff most of the character creation options now I've either cut them down or for things that I wrote from scratch, I tried to limit them to like three sentences. Mm -hmm. So that is just like, I'm like, what do people really need to know here? Um, but I tried to make it more than just purely mechanical. So for example, we have a bunch of new subclasses and um, like one of them is the Ascendant Cypher and they're ones who sort of like build to an apex of power. And then once they have max focus that they built, their things are way more powerful then, but until that point, they're actually sub subpar, sure. kind of weak. Yes. And then at the end of it, I say like, they kind of have this reputation, deserved or not, for being kind of cocky and brash. Mm -hmm. And it's just like little things like that. To, yeah. if, if people kind of want an inkling of like, oh, maybe maybe that's how I'll kind of role play my character. Right. Um, if it's something that can inform their role playing decisions, which are, are actually very important in the game, I think it's worth including that stuff, but like leave it alone. Don't don't just inundate them with a, a billion things. They, they just need the the essentials to make a decision that helps inform mechanically and role-playing wise what they need to move forward. Okay, all right. Is there, I mean, I would think one thing you could do is like kind of like you know, structure the game in that a lot of the stuff that, you know, the lore becomes more back-loaded than front-loaded. I mean, is that something that you try to do or like? Yeah, it, like, like I said, it's, um, it's, it's tricky because there are, there is sort of an established style mm -hmm. of like, here's a bunch of lore to, to pair yeah. through. Um, so yeah, some of it, some of it being backloaded um, is good. Uh, being able to learn a lot of that stuff organically is good. Mm -hmm. um, we do make things, or I make things more difficult for us by typically having um, 
having the game's plot revolve around cultural conflicts, which okay. sort of necessitate like, yeah, eh, like these are these things coming together, and there's a historical context, and there's there's layers of stuff. Um, you you can layer that stuff in over time, and that's the best way to do it. Uh, but it does increase the difficulty of of telling the story organically in a way that's easy to digest. Uh, right. Well. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Let's jump back to the timeline. Okay. <laughs> um, so you were you guys were making your own modules and like yeah you so um, they were maybe doing it first and then you were starting to to do it as well and like um, yeah so we. Um, yeah, I don't know who started doing it first. I feel like we all sort of concurrently started just getting interested in making our stuff up and, and DMing. Mm -hmm. I think my friend Ryan Niemeyer, uh, who, the guy who had uh, the wizardry in Ultima on his PC, mm -hmm. I think he started running me through basic and expert stuff. Mm -hmm. And then later, my friend Jody started running, my friend Chris, these other guys. Um, and then around the same time, I'm like, man, I can do this yeah. too. Did you have a certain style or was like a certain way you like to build things? or um, The style of a idiot teenager okay. I don't know like, I mean you know we're, we're you know like those guys who are like you know we look up in the DMG like oh there's stats for all the demon princes we're gonna kill all of them and like right, you know right. skyrocket our characters to like you know 20th level or whatever um, but then I would say as we got into high school I started doing more DMing and uh, then I started doing world building I started just creating my own setting um, and my tendency even back then was to make things that felt more uh, sort of pseudo historical. Okay. So I would look at real world cultures and real world histories and I would right. kind of try. What's What setting did you choose? Oh, I mean, I, I just made like a, you know, like a fantasy setting that was in some ways kind of forgotten realmsy mm -hmm. because why not? Um, right. That was what I was most familiar with. But, you know, I would try to incorporate bits of, you know, whether it was like, Irish language and history or okay. German language and history and like all these things that I was kind of like picking up little tidbits of mm -hmm. and um were you reading like history books like random yeah yeah I was yeah stuff up yeah. yeah I was just picking up a lot of stuff from history books and um even then I was like just buying language books on my own to read and like sort of understand the basics of orthography and pronunciation and, and grammar and stuff like that wow. okay. and uh like uh I wouldn't say I was like Tolkien fanboy number one but one of the earliest you know, even when I was very, very young, I read Lord of the Rings yeah. um, and the constructed languages really appealed to me. And I always thought that was really fascinating. Um, obviously, I brought that into Pillars pretty heavily. Right. Um, but even back then, before I really had a, a solid, I'm, I'm not sure Tolkien, like I didn't have the the foundational understanding of, of grammar that he did. But that idea of, you know, sort of making these constructed languages out of uh stems and, and pieces of other languages really appealed to me. So um, I would build that stuff out. And and even then I had much more of a focus on, and maybe it's because of Greyhawk, maybe it's because of just an interest in history. Like Greyhawk as a setting always to me felt much more political than for example, Forgotten Realms. Like the conflicts between nations felt much more pronounced than in the Forgotten Realms, it's kind of more supernatural God level. Uh -huh. um, at least that's my, my impression of it. So when I defined these cultures and these places and these things, there was a lot of, um, I did a lot of defining of these different political organizations, criminal organizations, how they interacted. Um, and a lot of the conflicts in the setting were built around cultural, cultural identity and thing and very sort of actually in retrospect, sort of like historic historical materialism, like these conflicts are really driven by material drives and needs more than ideological or, right. you know, anything like that. Okay. 
right. So you were, you were building your own world, and then you started to build like ventures inside it, presumably, right? So yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, um, I really built them for that purpose. That purpose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, were you, I mean, were other people doing this, or did, were you kind of like leading the group at this point or like um i mean we still would play in forgotten realms right. um i think my friend jody did some world building as well um and he's i mean even today I, i'm still friends with him and he's still an incredibly creative man um but uh i think i was i was going way deeper yep. <laughs> with everything like i was just putting actually now that i think about it my friend brian um also did his own world building he was really into irish history and language right um he kind of got me interested um in that stuff as well just a little bit But um, yeah, at the time, I think I was the one who was like really, really getting into like, I'm going to write all this stuff and I'm going to, I drew all these maps and yeah. Um, yeah, I got really into it. And that, that carried me all the way through high school and then into college. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember, I think it was toward the end of high school and the beginning of college, I started designing my own system, my own tabletop role-playing game system. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, what did you, uh, like, what type of system did you want to make? Like, why, why did you do that? Um, because I was annoyed with second edition AD&D. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, so... It's so, a good reason to start making yeah. a game. That's totally legit. Um, well, I, I don't want to say I was actually annoyed by it as much as, like, after... Because, honestly, the best role-playing game experiences I've ever had have been in second edition AD&D. Okay. The first games that I made in the game industry were second edition AD&D, so I can't knock it that much. Um, but, excuse me, there's not a... <laughs> you, you put a game system in front of me, including anything I've made, and I will criticize it endlessly. Right. Um, so I started noticing certain things that just felt like really arbitrary limitations, where I was like, I don't think this is for the benefit of anybody. I don't think this makes things better for the players. I don't think this makes things better for the people running the game. Can you think of a good example? Uh, yeah, I mean, like... Um, the way that, uh, like, uh, for example, multi-classing restrictions. Okay. Uh, multi multi-classing restrictions. Uh, the way that classes leveled differently at different rates. Um, I think even back then, I sort of sensed it that it was more intuitive to, like, normalize one axis, <laughs> and then try to equalize things around that, as opposed to what D and D said was. Well, a rogue at this le at seventh level is weaker than a fighter at seventh level, but a rogue will get to seventh level faster. Right. Which to me, I was kind of like, just that doesn't make sense. Just yeah, stop, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> make them advance, you know, sort of at the same rate. But and then all the multi-classing restrictions, all the racial restrictions, um, the racial restrictions, stuff like that, they felt more. Um, they just felt kind of arbitrary in a lot of cases. I'm like, okay, these two classes can work, but these two can't but only for these sub races, but not for these other sub races. And I was just like, does it, does it hurt anything? Does it really affect balance that much? Mm -hmm. If you didn't, if you allowed it to work a different way. Um, and also things like armor restrictions, weapon restrictions. I, I kind of thought like, I, I kind, I kind of get why this is working this way, but ultimately balance wise, I don't think that. And, and I remember reading, because I was also, I had subscriptions to dragon and dungeon magazine. Yeah. And I remember people sort of, you know, writing in, I remember specifically one guy saying like, you know, you can put a, a wizard, a low level wizard in plate armor and give him a lightsaber and he's going to die because, mm -hmm. he, because he has no hit points and he has a horrible two hit armor class zero. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was thinking like, I bet there's a way to do this. That's less around all of these like things that are like really trying to force the classes apart and separate them. And, um, I had not played classless role-playing games at that time, but that's mm -hmm. what I made. I see. Um, So I made a classless skill-based role-playing game system. 
Um, it had a actually I take that back. I played Darklands, mm -hmm. which was very influential on me. Okay, the, um, the computer game. The computer game. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, still to this day one of my favorite role playing games. Right. In part because it feels like, and I didn't. I don't think I had a chance to really ask. I I, I actually got a chance to interview um, Arnold Hendrick, who was okay. one of the main designers mm -hmm. on it, and. Um, it felt like a role-playing game designed by someone who did not have any of the baggage of, of other of other role-playing games. Had he not played a lot of role-playing games? Like I said, I don't remember if I had an opportunity to actually ask him that. But um, you know, there were no classes, there were no alignments, there were no. Yeah. It, it was it was all and there were no levels. It was just a learn by doing system right. with a, about a hundred point scale, and. Now the theme of that game is kind of like it's medieval Germany and we're going to kind of pretend like everything they thought then yes. is real and that is like I'm sad I missed that game somehow I just didn't even know about it until later because that's like exactly the type of game I would love to play right? well guess or what it's also make, the, right? it's the sort of game that I still want to make yeah 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 it's, it's I've I have um, when I got into the industry there were really three games that I wanted to make um, like at a very high level I wanted to make a D&D game mm -hmm. I wanted to make a Fallout game right and I wanted to make a historical fantasy game right Two out of three right, ain't bad. <laughs> Someday soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think when I looked at Darklands, I'm like, this is really cool. Like, you know, the learn by doing system really appealed to me. I made a tiered. This, the, I'm going to get into detail here. I hope you don't mind. But like, so I made this tiered skill system where, um, and this is very artificial and arbitrary. But I liked the I liked the way that it worked in practice, which was um, there were a lot of individual skills. Like, for example. Longsword. That is a single skill that you put points into and then you can advance by, by using it. Below longsword, there is heavy blades as a category. Right. Um, you don't actually invest in that, but I'll get to that later. And then below, but is, is longsword part of heavy blades? Is that yes, the idea? Okay. Yeah, it's sort of it's a sub it's a it's a it's the the end point that you actually sort of advance in. Okay. And then below that was I think just either swords or melee, I can't remember. Okay. But all of them were like three levels deep. Mm -hmm. And what would happen is you, you know, use the individual skill, um, or use, you know, basically I'm, I'm using a longsword, mm -hmm. and then you mark off every time you fail, Okay. and you mark off every time you critically hit. Critical hits are just sort of like a flat, like, yep, if you ever roll this thing, that's a crit, you write it down. If you fail, and part of it is that if you do more challenging things, you are more likely to fail, right. then you mark that down. And then at the end of a session, you roll, and you're trying to roll over your current skill. Okay. But you subtract a point for every failure you've had uh -huh. and every critical that you've had. Okay. And if you've never failed and you've never critted on that adventure, you don't get to roll for it. Okay. So, so the, well, the crits and the fails are going to make it more likely that you're going to progress. Yes. That's an awesome concept that failure was part of that. It was, it was a really, it was both, for, it was for a couple of reasons. One, it naturally slowed the rate of progression because you had to, if you didn't take chances and try to do fancy things, mm -hmm. you weren't probably going to get uh, a critical failure, or I'm sorry, just a failure. Uh -huh. And the higher your skill got, the more difficult it was to roll over it. So you, it encouraged players to take more risks um, and try sort of crazier maneuvers and stuff like that. Right. Um, it wasn't perfect, but well, and then here's the other thing. So what would happen is um, every, I think three times that you advance, so every time you actually advanced uh, one of those final skills, you would there's a lot of bookkeeping in this game. You would, you would tag that, and then every like three or five times that you advanced the final skill, right. you would actually advance the one below. Okay. So you would advance um, heavy blades. Right. Now your skill total was every layer. So it was melee, heavy blades, longsword. Uh -huh. 
if you wanted to, if you started to slow down with longsword, uh-huh. you could switch to saber. Right. And you would have the benefits of all the times you had advanced heavy blades and all right. the times you'd advanced melee. But here's what was kind of neat is as you use the saber, you're not as good with your longsword. But because you're not as good, you're going to fail a little more often and you're going to advance it faster. Okay. And each time you advance it, every three times, you advance heavy blades, which in turn feeds back into longsword. Longsword, okay. So a way to a way to increase the final value of a skill that had stagnated because you'd become so good at it was to take something close by mm. that you were not as good in and use that to indirectly raise it. Wow. So there was a lot of like weird, weird yeah, stuff. Yeah. It, I, I will say, it sounds like you designed something that might work better on a computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Had, had you thought, did you, uh, I was going to ask earlier when you said you talked about the Commodore, did you ever try any programming? Um, a little bit. I am not good. I've never been good at it. I get very frustrated debugging. Okay. Um, I I programmed in Pascal mm-hmm. in um in high school, I made like a character. Any time I programmed, I immediately went to make role playing games. Yeah, stuff. of course. So I made. A, <laughs> I'm I not made, surprised. Yeah, I made like a character creator, and I made a couple of other things. Um, I I did do some stuff in Visual Basic, mm. um, also a character creator, <laughs> um, because that, that's like I mean that that's there's so much bookkeeping and complexity. Of co- of course, you know this is again like the 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 inexperienced modern mentality is like I'm going to do the most complex thing yep. first because like. It's the most interesting thing to me, um, as opposed to saying like, step back. Like, right. do you understand the scope of everything you're trying to do? Of course not. Um, but yeah, I, I did do those things. Um, of my friends, I feel like I, I had the least, honestly, talent for it. Because <laughs> okay. I was just, I, I would, I was. Uh, there was something about programming that I, I uh, would get very frustrated, especially with debugging with. Sure. Um, so. I did enough programming to kind of like get what it was about right. and understand some of the the problems with it, which I think even to this day is, is helpful to me. Um, but I was not that good at it. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting if you're making a system that sounds like it could work as a computer game, but you weren't quite, you know, able to like turn that. Back in the day, I, I really didn't think a whole lot about bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. Um, you just and, didn't think that was an issue? Not really. I mean, yeah, I mean, I... There's there's so many more examples of things from that game system that really required you know, like even more bookkeeping. Yeah. Um, I think also maybe around, as as it evolved, I remember I got um, Harn World, which is ludicrously complex. Okay. And I was like, okay, even I'm not that. <laughs> even I'm not that like crazy so about not it. Be that bad, right? Yeah. So I was like, well, but also I did take certain ideas from it, and um, yeah, the bookkeeping aspect, and and also to be honest, like even to this day as a player, I don't mind the bookkeeping that much. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my one of my favorite tabletop role playing games is uh, Ars Magica, yep. and holy crap, that is just I think it has more bookkeeping than any tabletop yep. game I've ever played. Yeah. So I understand why most players don't like it, but I, in some ways, I just like I love just tracking all that crap. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. The um, so you're making a. Um, you're making a you're making an RPG system. Yes. I mean, did you get a lot of people to play it? Like- yeah, actually, so surprisingly, I mean, I um, so I some of my friends in in high school played it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they gave me good feedback about it. Mm-hmm. I, I did like- you adapt it? Like, I mean, did you build it kind of in concurrence with them? Like- yeah, I mean, I I I doubt that I was as open minded as I am now about about things. Um, I do think though that you know that early phase of criticism. I don't think I ever took things really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I think it did start me thinking about like, hey, design is about needs and constraints, even though I couldn't articulate that then. Right. <laughs> I was like, what am I trying to accomplish? Like, what do I need to do? What are the constraints that are placed upon me, either in terms of time or patience or all these other things, uh, limitations of other subsystems? And I started kind of in, intuiting that, I guess, more than really fully understanding what I was doing. Um, but as I got more feedback, I realized like, oh, crap, like, um, I, I didn't take the game in radical new directions, but there were things where I'm like, oh, you know what, this this probably would be faster this way, or like, oh, this would probably be simpler this way. Um, and through college, I actually found there was like a big group of role players. Where did you go to college? I went to college in um, at, in uh, at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. Okay. It's a small private liberal arts school. Mm-hmm. I originally went there for vocal performance. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but I. Um, <laughs> I was not a good student, so I um, the conserv- the conservatory program is extremely extremely aggressive, and I was a really bad student. Um, Vocal performances mean like singing, like, right? But what what type of singing? Um, well, what I wanted to do was musical theater. Okay. Um, okay. Lawrence is a little more oriented towards, uh, I guess I would say like art songs and opera and stuff like that. Right. Um, although I think it's it's shifted a little bit over time. I've I haven't been there in twenty years, so sure. um, or about twenty years. But um, yeah, it's it's a very it does you know it is a very it's a very the conservatory is a very good school. Right. It is a one that separates the the wheat from the chaff though, and I was definitely I like singing. Uh-huh. I did not like the work that was required to be a musician. <laughs> and what what did that mean? Did that mean you, this was just a lot of time involved? Or there was an incredible amount of time involved. That- so conservatory students um, really needed to be. Like, so everyone technically had like three or three and a half credit. I know it's a weird school, like in terms of credits, it doesn't line up with uh-huh. anything else, but a full course load is typically considered three. Okay. And an overload is uh, about three and a half credits. Okay. And, um, yeah, that is different. I've never, it, it's, it's very, it's, it doesn't, <laughs> and we're on trimesters too. So everything goes out the window, wow. but, um, you know, we really, we would take these one sixth, one sixth credit courses right. that were mandatory but they were way more than one sixth of the time for one credit course. Okay. And so we had um, we had sight singing at 6.50 a.m. Sight singing? Sight singing, so like solfege, like be, being able to look across a, a line of music. Oh, oh, oh like sight, sight reading. Sight reading, okay, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and, um, and using solfege to, you yep. know, like correspond to the tone. Yep. Um, uh, keyboard, for those of us who are not really proficient in piano. Yeah. Um, every conservatory student needed to actually be quite proficient in piano yeah. uh, by the time they were like a sophomore. That was hard. Um, we also had music theory, uh-huh. which is very intense. We also all had to be in an ensemble. For yep. me, that was choir. And then we had private lessons uh-huh. that we had to go to. We had the, um, we had the uh, God, what was it? It was basically the, stu- the studio class. So all the students of the private lesson teacher would come together and we would all sing um, individually. And then uh, we also then had, geez, what else? Um, freshman studies, which every freshman was required to take. I think there might even be something I'm missing in there, but it was a that lot. Like, yeah, that's- it, was, it was a lot of work and uh, you needed to be really serious and okay. put in a lot of time. And um, because the school puts out really good music students and graduates. Right. And I, I was just, I, 
I was not any used sense? to. So you were getting to this hardcore of a program. I mean, no. is it one of the better programs? Like it's 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a very good it's it's a very good like for the Midwest. You yeah. know, it's it's. I mean, we have you know, there's like McAllister and Oberlin and stuff yeah. like that. And obviously, we'll all debate about sure, who's sure. really the best. But like, it's it's respected. Yeah. So and did you, you so but did you know like you're getting into this hardcore no, program? Or? I didn't know. I mean, if I had known, I would have either not done it or been more serious about right. it. Okay. And I was not ready to be serious um, about anything. Had you, really. had you done a lot of like musical theater in high school? Like, oh yeah, I mean that part of it. From? Yeah, I mean I, I did a lot of musical theater. I did um, I did choir. I did all sorts of you know solo and ensemble. Right. So and you really enjoyed performing. I really like, enjoyed performing, but it's like, hey, dude, being a musician, like a real working musician, yeah. is about a lot more than that. Yeah. And I really respect professional musicians. Um, yeah. And it's, it's funny because actually on a number of games that I've worked on now, I've actually had the opportunity to sing oh, cool. and uh, go into the final soundtrack. Um, and cool. uh, and it, it feels weird because I don't feel like I should be doing these <laughs> things because I know like, uh, you know, I, I'm still friends with, with some of the people who went through the whole program and they are professional working musicians. Right. And... I know what they're capable of and how truly skilled they are. And yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a dilettante basically. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah. but, um, so yeah, I went there, I went there as a music student and then I switched over to get a degree in history. Um, right. Because again, I'd always been passionate about history. Yeah. That seems with, with music though, I, I did have an idea of what I was going to do. I'm like, I'm going to be a musical theater performer. Yeah. Um, with history, I didn't really know what I was going right. to do. I, I did not have my sights set on academia. Um, uh-huh. I was still doing theater, and I got uh, a theater minor. Uh-huh. And so I thought, maybe I'll do dramaturgical work. Um, I embraced the full curriculum of history much more than I embraced uh, being in the conservatory of music. Right. But I was still not a very good student. Um, and I still no, let, me, let me ask. So back, oh, when, sure. back when you were in high school, I mean, you, you know, you, for instance, you got Dragon, right? So you were aware that, like, there is an industry about games, you know, like video yeah. games are trying to become a thing. Did you think at all about video game development? So here's what's weird. Um, I knew about through drag. Oh, okay. So I grew up in Wisconsin. Right. Sure. Yeah. And TSR yeah. was right there. Yeah. Not only that, but my dad is a bronze sculptor and he wound up doing restorational work for the city of Lake Geneva, uh-huh. which is where TSR yeah. is or right. was. Yeah. Rest in peace. Um, and he wound up actually doing a job with Jeff Easley, who is one of the great uh, traditional D&D artists. Okay. And I was like, oh my God. And I really wanted to be an illustrator. Okay. Um, I know this sounds crazy because I keep switching all these disciplines. But like, <laughs> but I mean, like, I mean, I love my dad. Uh-huh. I love art. I mean, I, I have to credit him with getting me so interested in art. Yeah. Um, he did some illustration. I was really interested in illustration. I really love fantasy art. Mm-hmm. And uh, all through grade school, all the way up, and I have to credit Wisconsin Public Schools at that time for I could take art from first grade all the way through high oh, that's school. Cool. That's, it was that's it was amazing, yeah. I, uh, and my teachers were, were really fantastic. And uh, and my dad was also fantastic in, as a teacher. And I wanted to be an illustrator for a really long time, uh-huh. and I wanted to be a fantasy illustrator, but I'm colorblind. Oh. And in high school, when I started doing painting, I started getting frustrated. And uh, again, I was a lazy child. Uh-huh. And so I just sort of like deflected off of that. Right. But um, but my dad, when he worked with Jeff Easley, I was just like, oh my God, like I want to, I want to, can I, can I meet him? Can I, and uh, actually arranged to go to TSR and meet, uh, Larry Elmore wasn't there, but uh, Jeff Easley, Gerald Brom, um, 
and uh, Rob Ruppel and Clyde Caldwell. Uh And I mean, what's crazy now is that, well, okay, another diversion. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) Rob Ruppel uh, came to TSR from doing, he was doing a lot of like uh, fantasy novel covers and uh, I think romance novel covers. He's a fantastic artist. And he needed a model for a module. Okay. And he, he said, hey, can, can Josh model for this? And I was like, oh, my God, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I went and he, he painted me and then he uh, or he he took some photographs so that he could paint me into this yeah. module cover. And then, um, you know, he said, like, hey, do you want something out of the warehouse, like a couple of books or whatever? And I'm like, right. oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh. And then so I got a couple of I don't remember what it was, got a yeah, couple yeah. of books. And um, sure enough, it was used on this cover, this module. OK. And. Right. Um, then there were two weird follow-ups to that that were very strange. Um, and I'm, I know I'm jumping around temporarily here, but at the end of college, when I got, uh, I got my web design job with, uh, Blackout Studios, okay. because it was a D and D game, it was going to be Planescape Torment. They sent me a bunch of materials and the, I got this thing and it was like 25th anniversary of, of Dungeons and Dragons. And the art that they used was the painting that I was in that Rob Ruppel had made. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, that's cool. Uh-huh. It gets weirder. Okay. So I was at... Um, I was at Black Isle and I mentioned the story to someone and they were like, really? No way. And so I got out the module because uh-huh. I, I had it with a bunch of my d books. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, check it out. And I looked at the author and it was Colin McCone, okay. who is one of the main designers on Platescape Torment at Black Isle. Right. And I had never met him. Like uh-huh. it was just this weird coincidence that years and years ago. Yeah. I had been the model for a painting done for a module that he wrote. Right. And I went over and I'm like, Colin, do you know who this, this is? is? Oh, wow. And yeah. he's like, what? And I'm like, this it's is me neat. as a teenager. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Um, wow. That is weird. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I got to, anyway, I guess all of this is to say that I got this really cool, like I was, I was so lucky that I got this exposure to the tabletop industry, even though it was completely through this warped lens of fandom right. and wanting to be an illustrator and everything. So in my mind, I was like, I was designing tabletop games. And I'm like, I can do this. Yeah. Like, I believe I can be a tabletop designer. I have no idea really how to do that. But I was kind of like, well, I'm doing it now. Yeah. Right. I'm like, I don't know how to turn this into a book uh-huh. that goes out. And there must be a way to do this, though. And so I didn't necessarily have that as a goal. But it's something like I was like, I, I think I can do this. I, right. I, I can at least do the, the work to make the game and play the game. Right. I'm sure there's more to it than that. <laughs> And so this was this kind of like latent thing about video games because at that time, to, as far as I know, there wasn't really much of anything in Wisconsin yeah. other than when like it kind of drifted through there yep, or whatever. Sure. Um, I I really didn't even, like I couldn't comprehend of a path sure. to that. Well, for what you did, it totally makes sense that you would think about tabletop, tabletop first. Yeah. Anyway, but that's, that question is legitimate too. Like, did you think about like, I should try to become a tabletop designer instead of like, you know, like... Whatever it is, you know, musical theater. Or yeah. So, so here is the the you know the torturous like end of my college career. So I um you know I was put on academic probation twice mm-hmm. because honestly, what I was doing with a lot of my time in college was sleeping around, okay, and playing a ton of games, right. <laughs> which sounds like a weird combination of things. But in honestly, and in honesty, that's kind of what most of my time was taken up with, right? And just kind of hanging out with people and like doing whatever. And, um, and, uh, I was playing in at 1.5 games a week. Wow. Tabletop games. I was, I was running two and I was playing in three. Yep. And, um, 
I did not respect the time. I didn't, yeah. I didn't appreciate anything and like the money that my parents had paid for college and all this other crap. And like, it was very stupid. And I please do not take the path that I took to becoming a game <laughs> designer because this is really a stupid use of a very important time in a person's life. Um, right. But, uh, and, and so when I was, I, I almost dropped out. Um, uh, a friend of mine, Anne, told me, do not drop out of college. Mm. I know this seems very you know, difficult right now, but don't do it. So I have right. to credit her with convincing me to stay in college right. um, for my 2.4 grade point average that I graduated with. And, you know, I was graduating with, uh, I graduated late because I had switched majors, also because I had failed a couple of classes and mm-hmm. I was just irresponsible. And um, I, uh, yeah, I had frittered away a lot of time in college. And so as it came to the end, um, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Okay. And did you, I mean, did you, I guess what I was trying to say, did, like, did you dream, like, did you dream about becoming like a, like a RPG designer? I did. And, and actually what was weird is like, I talked to, I remember talking to a few people, um, and saying like, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to become a tabletop designer. Right. And literally having one of them just laugh at me and say like, yeah, I knew a guy who tried to do that. And like, it didn't go anywhere. I don't know why you think you would be any better than that. I'm sure. like, I don't know. I think I'm. I think I'm okay. Like, I think the people have fun playing the games that I make. And right. I don't know. I mean, and I admit it. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to make that sure, happen. Sure. But um, right. but it is a thing. People it's a thing. And and so, but in the, in the short term, it looked like I was going to do web design because I had taught myself, this is the mid nineties. Okay. And, and into the late nineties and I taught myself flash and some other things. And then I was actually going back to my illustration roots and I was looking at becoming a tattoo apprentice. And that was really what I thought after college. I'm like, I'm going to do, freelance web design and I'm going to become or I'm going to try to become a tattoo apprentice at Steve's Tattoo in Madison. Okay. Clearly, if you look at this expansive time in my life, it's completely aimless, wasting time, like yeah. screwing around. Um, even our accounting is kind of embarrassing. But... Um, yeah, yeah. Well, but, it's... Uh, I mean, because TSR, they, they take module submissions, right? I mean, did yeah. You ever, did you ever think about that? No, I like I said, I just I was really clueless about like how does any of this happen? Right, um, right. I also remember getting kind of frustrated. I will tell the story because I feel like I was vindicated in the end. So I was in RPGA, which is the Role Playing Game Association uh-huh. um, that that TSR ran, and people who were in RPGA got polyhedron and had all sorts of neat stuff in it. Uh-huh. And then at conventions like Gen Con, which of course I went to, uh-huh. um, they would have the RPGA like like grand meeting, I, I think before the convention started. And I remember going in there and um, they were talking about living world. Uh-huh. Um, or I'm sorry, they were talking about the living city, which is Raven's Bluff mm-hmm. or was Raven's Bluff. I don't, know, I don't know if it is anymore. I don't even know if they do living city anymore, but they're talking about living city and they're talking about how it was straining credulity because all these characters were made at all these, I won't go into all the details of it, I guess it's not important, but um, they were asking about ideas for like, what, how will we make this like keep going in a way that seems reasonable and viable even within a fantasy setting? And I was, I don't know if I was literally the youngest person there, but I really was uh, sure. young compared to the average age of, of people there. And I raised my hand and I said like, why don't we develop a living world? Mm-hmm. And like, then you can just keep branching and spreading out to all the corners of the thing and just keep it going forever. And I was literally laughed at by the room. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I guess. This. <laughs> but they did make wind up making a living world, man. Um, 
So yeah. It, yeah, it was a weird thing where I would I would sort of say like I want to I think I want to be a, a tabletop designer and I would literally get laughed at and I'm like and I didn't necessarily think I, I was doing amazing work but I'm like I don't know it seemed yeah. like this, this well, seems you were, fun. You were building stuff. I was I mean, building you stuff. You were putting the time so I mean it's hard right like I mean you're you're young you don't really know how this you no, know how I, you get I was just clueless. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah so I just I I. I was like, I think I can do this, but I don't really know how to, but I think I can. And that's really kind of where it ended. And I, I didn't have any sort of clue as to a path to that. Yep. Um, I never even thought, like you said, of like submitting modules or anything. I just, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The thing for me, the thing that I always remembered was, if you remember the old EA boxes, um, you know, kind of like the album covers. Yeah, right? yeah. Like there was just something that always stuck out to me. If I flipped over in the back, they always, there was this little piece of text on the bottom that was like, we are a collection of software artists. And we're looking for, I don't know, something. We're looking for the best to help us, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And there was, like, their address in, like, San Mateo, California. And, San Mateo, yeah. Yeah. And I always remember, like, I mean, like, this is a thing. Like, someday, like, I'll work for EA or whatever. Or, like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I wrote, I actually is... wrote to EA um, because, you know, I played Bard's Tale. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I have a great idea for a game, okay. of course. Yeah, yeah. And when I was much, much younger, um, uh-huh. you know, around the time I played Bard's Tale, Bard's Tale 2, and I wrote to him, and I got a form letter back mm-hmm. rejecting me. But that was so, I like kept that on, like, really? it, it might, yeah, because like, in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, I got a letter from California, mm-hmm. like from Electronic Arts that I'm, I love the old EA, yep, uh, the, the old EA logo, logo. The square circle triangle. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I'm like, oh man, this is so cool. And like, I had my, um, I think it actually, I still do have my, um, my friend Tony gave me a Bar's Tale 3 Thief of Fate poster, which is really cool. Mm, and, yeah. and so you know, like, I, I guess I, it was weird. Like even getting that form letter and getting rejected, I'm like, that's awesome. Right. This is a real, <laughs> a real thing from them. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But I mean, but that, that's where it ended as a child. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, let's talk about, that's one of the questions first. So we'll jump to like what happened after college. I sure, sure. just jump way back to because it's interesting you say that Darklands is one of your most, like one of your top RPGs, mm-hmm. right? Because people, it's, a little bit it's kind of forgotten basically yeah. right so i like to hear you say like why is it such an important rpg for you like what's so great about there's that? a few things one is it really it opened my mind at a time where i was really having a ton of fun with D and and i actually i continued playing AD&D through college mm-hmm. um and had really some of the greatest campaigns i've ever had which again is why i can't really knock second edition that much um it started really opening my mind to like you can make systems that aren't like this. Right. You can make systems that try to emulate either different things or they try to emulate the same thing through a different mechanism. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Like you can advance without levels. Right. You can advance things in a way that's just based off of you using them. Mm-hmm. Although there are pitfalls to that. Um, you can model things off of historical belief rather than the tropes of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Um, because keep in mind, like, even though, you know, Ultima is its own thing and Wizardry is its own thing, it's all this kind of glob of D&D inspired yeah. stuff. Yeah, derived stuff, yeah. And um, you can make a role-playing game that's about humans, fundamentally. Humans and their wrestling with the divine and the supernatural. Right. You don't need elves. You can, you can have an RPG set in the real world. Like, all these things are things where I was like, huh, oh my god, ah. I mean... I had also, I guess I had also played like Call of Cthulhu by that time, mm-hmm. but that seems so far removed from fantasy. Right. This, and, this still was like, this is an alternative yeah, RPG this is, that looks, you know, you squint your eye, you, you blur your eyes and it looks like Dungeons and Dragons, but it's like totally different. But radically different yeah, and yeah. a lot of really um, like aging mechanics were yeah. part of it, um, changing of seasons, um, 
really trying to emulate uh, a lot of things about the real world, like canonical hours. That's how all the time was tracked. Um, yeah, just uh, there's just lots of neat stuff. It it really did. It felt like it was it was made by a historian, which it was. I mean, Arnold Henrik was, yeah. was a historian, yeah. and so he approached things from this. I like I always think of it as history turned to eleven. Like, um, I mean, Kingdom Come Deliverance does this as well. <laughs> Uh, where I feel like if you're going to make something historical, even mm. if it's historical fantasy, right. like don't, it's not a sprinkling on top. You're yeah. digging down to the roots, the mm. fundament of this stuff right. and really embracing it with both arms everything that's and like, both legs. Everything, yeah. that's like, everything that's like fundamentally different about that period. Yeah. Like, like get into it um, because that's where, that's where like you really start to feel how, alien to fan to traditional fantasy it is mm -hmm. and and you also start to see i mean this is what i love about history is seeing these like these streams and paths of things from the past coming you know forward to the present um and so that's why i was like man like they just they dug so deep on this you got to pray to them. you know you have saints you know like you don't really have priests you have saints you learn their mysteries you yeah. pray, pray to them if you pray to them on their feast day you have a better chance of getting their favor. Um, yeah. Just all that stuff I thought was uh, like all the alchemical stuff was based off of um, like loosely, but really, you know, based off of real historical alchemists. Yeah. Um, all the symbols that they used were alchemical symbols that were actually used, whether it was sublimation or evaporation or like whatever that stuff was, all those things moved it away from like, there's something to be said for like, you know, one of this is like a pet peeve of mine is like the fantasy rune. I'm like no, nah, no, nah, nah. like mm -hmm. there's especially because I love constructed languages so much. I'm like think about what what you're what are you doing? <laughs> like right. what does this symbol mean? What is this mark for? Like what does this stand for? What is it embodying? Um, and in Darklands, they didn't use fantasy runes. They used alchemical symbols. Mm -hmm. And you can go and look those up. And and you can look up Galen. You can look up Altamini. You can look up these. These are Albertus Magnus. Right. Um, Albert the Great. Like these were real people who wrote treatises on alchemy and yeah 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 and it's and that that really that embracing that full embracing of historical fantasy and straddling that line uh was really really influential to me um the fact that it was so open yeah. um it was the first real time with pause mm -hmm. game that i played i think there was only one other like herzog's Fire or something like that that was before right. it but um yeah it was just it did so many things that i had never seen before in a way that was just crazy and there's a lot of really clumsy and clunky and irritating things about it but in my mind they all get just kind of pushed down yeah, people are like this font is unreadable at 320 <laughs> 320 by 200 i'm like i know i know yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. well you know in game design i mean you know in game design you inherit so much right from like the the the, the john you're in and the traditions and dnd and &D looms so large right yes that it's just like it did obviously it did great things for rpg you know it's like you know, it created it, right? Yes. But like, yes, it also definitely. kind of twisted it, right? So yes, and and like I said after your your talk, I'm right. like, if you want if you want to work in a genre that has maybe more baggage than anything else, it's a fantasy party based RPG. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally see that. I'm like, I'm like thinking about all that stuff. Definitely. Um, wow, that's cool. I, I mean, I I wish I'd play Darklands because that totally sounds like my bag. <laughs> and <laughs> like, it's, because, it's, there's, because there's like centuries of material to work with. Oh, it's incredible. Millennia of material to work with in like in history, right? And, like, yeah. And it's, it's, I think the other thing that's really cool is um, I went back and looked at my Darklands um, manual mm -hmm. and uh, Arnold Hendrick included 
a, a bibliography uh-huh. and I actually found these like some of these rare books like there were these um, German maps from the Middle Ages mm-hmm. that have city maps of of cities from 15th century Europe that they're incredible and they have overlays like mm-hmm. they have transparent overlays and all these things that are just like the these, map the, the books back then had transparent overlays? no so it was it's it's a it's a book oh, oh that was published in the late 70s okay. um a book that was published in the late 70s uh-huh. that copied right. um, that basically took medieval maps yes. and then recreated them uh-huh. modern and labeled them and it showed like trade routes across Europe and and near Asia and like uh-huh. all these other things and it was just that was another thing where so, like seeing his inspiration and then going and finding that inspiration and, and having that second layer of sort of illumination come right. out of it was so it would have overlays it would give you extra information about the map if you wanted yeah. to see a specific thing right? yeah 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 okay. um the, it's funny because I just went to uh, I went to a talk this afternoon by uh, someone I can't remember is it Inky or something In- they, they, Inc- they, Inkle Inkle yeah. The, the UX, uh, so they did uh, 80 Days. Yep, and Sorcery. And, and Sorcery, and yeah. it was about um, legibility and, and uh, legibility and readability of text, among other things. Yes. And, and I always struggle with that because I really want the style to come across. Yes. But then I think back to Darklands where really what they're trying to do is within a 320 by 200 screen or 240, 200, I can't remember, within a very small space, they're trying to represent Fractor. They're trying to represent a black letter text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One, black letter is really hard to read, even if you have great resolution. Yeah. <laughs> Second, um, at that resolution, it's awful, and it, that's one of those things where I think about like I really appreciate and love that they tried to have a uh, a font that felt like medieval German, it's reflective of the period script. Yeah. But that's what everyone just can't stand they just bounce off of yeah, it so i do I, I do know what you're talking about because i've seen screenshots and it's I, pretty awful it, i was like what this seemed wow that's really <laughs> it's really hard to, like, this is really weird pseudo fractor yeah I, I do not know what this says i'm gonna have to like take my time to like read through it like um yeah <laughs> wow all right cool well that's no I'm, I'm glad we got the background on it um Okay, so you you're kind of finishing up college, and you're thinking to be do web stuff, basically, right? And yeah, uh, well, work. I was like, I'm going to do web stuff. Um, I had worked for I had in, during the summer or a couple of summers, I had worked for my friend Brian's dad. He uh-huh. uh, he ran um, or still runs, I think, a store in Fort Atkinson called CompuFort, and it was the, the town computer store, yep. and it also had web, web hosting and things like that. And so I would help with stuff there and I would do web design stuff for him and, and things like that. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get full-time work, um, you know, year round there. So I was like, well, I can do some of that. I can do some freelance and then I can look into being a tattoo apprentice maybe at, at Steve's mm-hmm. um, because I had, I had done the website for, for Steve's tattoo, which in retrospect was an awful website. But um, here's the thing though. I did use flash on it. Yes. And this was at a time when actually surprisingly very few people knew flash. Right. And it is one of the reasons I got hired at Black Isle okay. because they were looking for someone with Flash. Yeah, I was say like you. Kind <laughs> I was of, like, look at this tattoo parlor website I made. Yeah, yeah, you like, kind of worked your way into a skill that actually I, it would be viable. By the way, I will say that like throughout this, my whole life basically has been good fortune, <laughs> like because especially leading through college, I did not work hard at almost anything. What so I was passionate about stuff, but I just I just was like one lucky fortunate. What thing was the another. first step that, that got you to try Flash? Like how did that? Um, I so I was doing a lot of HTML, um, like just learning that on my own. Why were you interested in this to begin with? Like... 
That's a good question. Um, I just thought that the internet was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I this wanted would have been 1996. Seven? Yeah, 96 was about when. So this is like post mosaic or whatever. It was like there was this was the beginning of like the real web, but it was still real. Early. It was still pretty primitive. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was very interesting to me. I had a lot of comp sci friends. Mm-hmm. Um, markup was way easier for me to get into than coding. Yeah. Okay. Um, because you're like laying something out. Sort yeah, of I was laying something out. And so it appealed to my sort of graphic design sense because I, in high school, I had done a lot of stuff with print shop and Photoshop and things like that. Right. Um, and so not that I'm like a great graphic designer or anything like that, but again, I have sort of an illustration background, a little bit of graphic design background. And I just wanted to make my own personal page because Lawrence, that was the first like 95 or 96 was when they were like, hey, you each have five megs of personal web space on this server. Mm-hmm. Of course, then I hosted my own server locally and then rerouted all my images from there. And I caused, and I got in big trouble for that. Um, but I started, um, yeah, I just, I, I thought it was cool. Um, I set up a, we had a Quake clan. Okay. Yeah, and I was curious, like, what's the input, like, what's the actual first thing you were trying to make? I think the first thing was just my personal page. Sure. And then after that, I made our Quake clan page uh-huh. um, and a bunch of silly crap on there. Um, and some of those were internal to Lawrence and some were externally facing and it's funny because i uh i have to the very first time i saw flash someone was showing it him showing to me on his quake clan page nice (laughs) (laughs) there's just something about this yeah i I don't i don't think i you know i'm trying to remember i don't think i think the first page that i used flash on was actually like for a client it was either for steve's tattoo or, or some other uh, website. Right. Okay. Um, but you're starting to build, you're starting to build web pages for anything. Yeah. I was starting to build web pages and flash. Like, I mean, I think, you know, all, all of us idiots in that time period when we saw flash, we were like, wow, let's put flash on everything, which, you know, on the receiving end is just garbage. Um, and so I just got into it. I'm like, oh, cool. Like I can have animations. I can like, I can have sound embedded in this. I can do all sorts of crazy stuff because you tried to do it the hard way. Yes. you realize like this is a huge step forward, like as far as like what you could accomplish. Yes, right? and this and it was pre HTML five. Oh well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was pre <laughs> like a I'm, decade. I'm, yeah, well, I'm trying to think of like well, sometime after Flash, you started to get the ability through a couple of different scripting languages to do animations and stuff like that, but it was still the hard way, yeah. and it was still after Flash. Yeah. So Flash seemed I mean, like the easy way to do yeah, it. Yeah, Flash is like a shortcut. Like yes. it's basically cheating. Yes. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> And here I am again, the cheater. Like, give me the easy way to do yeah. something. Yeah, well that's why it became so popular, right? Yeah. Like, and, uh, um, and in in I also I think I used my website. I did also host, I think I hosted a few um levels that I made in Radiant. No. I don't remember what the first Quake the first publicly available Quake editor okay. was. Oh, so you built Quake levels? Yeah, I built a couple of them. Okay. They're garbage. Okay. Um, <laughs> they're interesting concepts, but, you know, really in every... And there was another, like, sort of early exposure to, like, player feedback. Yeah, like, yeah. all of my all of my buddies would play, and they're like, this level fucking sucks, dude. Like, we all wind up with negative kill counts at the end of it, because it was, like, full of, like... I had this, uh, this level that I called Game Ground, which is sort of inspired by this old... Uh, crazy arcade game called Game Ground, although they're mm-hmm. dissimilar. But the idea was that it was like this tiered level, uh-huh. kind of went around, went around, like a tower kind of going up on the inside. And the better stuff was all on the higher levels, right. but there were traps that were more and more dangerous and lethal the higher you got. Right. And so it was like a neat kind of like risk reward thing. But um, 
Nobody likes seeing negative frag counts at the end of a round. Sure. So, <laughs> yeah, and also yeah. getting killed by traps constantly is very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but I was like, here's a concept that should have stayed a concept. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, <laughs> cool. So you tied your post, you tied yourself flash. Yes. And then you were trying to turn this into some sort of a living. Yeah, I was like, yeah. Well, I mean, I know I know flash, and okay. you know, people are you know, flash was starting to get big, mm -hmm. and again, not many people knew it. Um, I mean. I was told when I got hired by Black Isle that of the 62 people who applied for the position, only three knew Flash. Wow. And I was one of them. <laughs> so I was like... 62 people applied for that one position? I guess so. Wow. Okay. This was this was <laughs> 99. 99. Wow. As yeah. of, uh, yeah, like, it's been almost 18 years to the day, so... Wow. I applied to Black Isle in 99. Nice. Or 2000? Late 99, early 2000. Yeah, that's when I was looking for a job being out of college. And, uh, Sweet. It was my second choice. Nice. So if I, <laughs> if I hadn't gone to Fraxis, uh, yeah, we, <laughs> I would have been there. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So you were, um, did you do some work before or like, did you, uh, did you do some like, no, I mean, I really, it was, it was actually, it was, um, it was a pretty crazy fast transition. Um, mm -hmm. my friend, Michael, did you, had you been watching blackout closely? No. So this is, this is the thing like, again, I am incredibly lucky that I've had very supportive parents friends who talk good sense into me when I'm being a moron um, and support me when I'm having lots of emotional problems and other things like that. And towards the end of college, I'm like, well, I guess I'm going back to Fort and I'm going to work <laughs> kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And um, my friend Michael said, hey, there is a job opening listed on the Black Isle Studios webpage. Right. And I was like, Black Isle, didn't they make like Fallout? And he's mm -hmm. like, yeah. And um, of course, I, even then I was conflating Black Isle and Bioware. Sure, yeah, um, yeah. So I'm like, oh, and they made Baldur's Gate. And although I, yeah, Baldur's Gate, I think, had come out by then. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, late 98. So this was the beginning of 99 because mm. I was graduating in a weird time because I was a bad student. Mm. Um, and uh, I, and it didn't say, it said it was for a secret, I think it said like a secret D&D &D game. Okay. Like they weren't revealing what it was. Okay. And I'm like. That's cool. Like, yeah. go be a webmaster for a D&D game. That sounds like pretty cool to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I played some, I didn't, well, I didn't know what to like prep for, but I knew D&D really well. Yeah. So I wrote, um, I sent my resume and it had Flash and all this other stuff and uh, my, you know, portfolio. And then I wrote this four page cover letter wow. in Pine. I don't know if you remember the Pine yeah, email. I remember, I remember. So I, <laughs> yeah. this, it like, obviously like do not make a four page cover letter. I'm amazed. <laughs> and, uh, and it was this rambling thing about like what I thought, like stuff that was completely irrelevant to this job. Like this is what I think the future of role-playing games is going to be. Right. This is where I think things are going to go this way. And like all this other stuff. And, um, I actually was not the first choice for the job. Okay. I was the second, the first choice. He decided not to take the job instead, go to Seattle to be with his girlfriend. Right. Thank you. Thank wherever you, whoever, you are. whoever that is. Yeah. Again, Good fortune. Right. So, uh, but yeah, they uh, they hired me, and I graduated. Did you talk, did you ever talk to them about like how you stood out? I mean, that's a lot of applicants. Um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was because I knew Flash, uh -huh. and it was because I had this monstrous um, bank of knowledge about D and D. Okay, so that passion came through. Like yes, you, yeah. You overdid the cover letter, <laughs> but maybe that was no. Know, he did say, yeah. I mean, uh, Greg Peterson was uh, the guy at Interplay who hired me in Interplay Marketing, and uh -huh. he he said, yeah, it was kind of crazy, but like you could tell that I really knew yeah. this stuff very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's what you look for when you're hiring. Yeah, <laughs> at least that's what you that's what you should look for, right? Yeah, you know, you know. I mean, 
you meet them to find out if they're crazy or not. Of then, course. But then, like, yeah, I mean... We did have a passion. phone interview and stuff like yeah, that, yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the passion's the, the number one, right? Like, that's where it starts. Yeah. But, um, okay, cool. Yeah, and then I, I graduated from college. Which project was this? Planescape tournament. Planescape, okay, yeah. cool. So I graduated from college. I went home for two weeks, but I had already gotten, you know, accepted for the job. And uh, I spent two weeks at home. My mom was really upset. Um, she still gets upset every time I go back to California <laughs> when I visit. And uh, yeah, I got on a plane. I I don't even know what I moved out there with. I think it was literally my computer uh-huh. and a bunch of D and D books. Right. Like only the essentials. Um, right. What did you think? How did you feel? Were you like this is? I don't know. It was it was really weird. Like I guess I didn't. Um, I don't know. Did this you was, appreciate like the opportunity that was like? Of course, like, I was like, wow, this is so awesome. Yeah. And I I didn't really know what to expect. I mean. I had only been to California as a baby. I lived in Pasadena when I was six months old and that's it. Um, And I had not been out to California. I mean, I I was very poorly traveled as a child. Uh Um, And so, but it was, I don't know, like I I wasn't, um, I wasn't afraid really. I was kind of just cool. I just yeah. got on a plane, my mom weeping in the terminal back when people <laughs> could come to the terminal with you. Yeah. And uh, I just got on a plane and I flew to California and, you know, like a huge cornball, yeah. I, I listened to uh, Going to California by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> okay. That was my dramatic, you know, I was like, I got to have the soundtrack of my life playing here. Yeah, and yeah. Um, okay. I came there and I, it was crazy. Like I just, um, I moved in with another guy who worked at Black Isle who uh-huh. was looking for a roommate. Okay. And I lived with him in Long Beach for a while. I didn't right. have a car for the first year I lived in yeah. California, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. But I also had no social life at all. Sure. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was weird. Um, I Again, I, I like stumbled through a series of s- s- mishaps of my own making and mm-hmm. somehow came out in California with a job in the game industry. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's cool. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about what happened in Black Isle then. So, so uh, yeah, I got that job. Mm-hmm. And... First thing I was tasked with was making the website for Planescape Torment. Um, I was never really a great web designer. Mm-hmm. I was good enough to, to do the job, but like, you know, it's not like I did anything super fantastic or anything. But um, I interacted a lot with the dev team. Uh, I really wanted to make sure that they were happy with what was on the site, that it was representing Planescape well, that it was representing the game they were making well. And so I did a lot of collaboration with them, which I think made up for maybe me not being the greatest graphic designer in the world and uh, making really load intensive flash uh, images on every single page, mm-hmm. which is very stupid. But hey, everyone was doing the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was working really closely with them and uh, getting to know them. And I don't, it wasn't that there was an ulterior motive. I mean, I wanted to be a game designer. Sure, yeah. But that, that I, I really was just passionate about. I was like, man, Planescape is super cool. I think this game is going to be really awesome. And I really feel like it needs a really kick-ass site that gets people jazzed about it. Right. And um, in the course of doing that, I did pester Fergus a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> about like, hey, man, can I maybe do some game design? Like, I don't even really know what's involved in that. But mm-hmm. he's like, no. Um, <laughs> like, we got, we got plenty of people over here. And um, it wasn't until Icewind Dale... Uh, one of the key personnel left and they had an opening for a junior designer. Okay. Uh, or rather, I think Fergus said like, hey, someone left. So part-time, he's like, we still need you to do a bunch of web stuff because you still have to do the 
Icewind Dale website. Yeah. You also have to do the BG2 website. You right. also have to do the Never, Never Winter Nights website. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll do all those and I'll do my, I'll do junior design work as well. Right. Um, and so that's when I started transitioning. Um, and I think really it was because, not it wasn't just the pestering, it was also because I think people like uh, Chris Avalone and Colin McComb, uh, especially, uh, realized that I knew a ton about D&D and the Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, eh, this guy actually would probably be a pretty good fit for now, how, did, how did they learn that? Like you just showed up and started talking about it or like you played the game and gave them feedback? Or, like, um, it, was, it was just, it would come up in conversations be. because uh-huh. I, yeah, we would just talk about stuff. Um, yeah, we just talk about stuff and I knew, I knew that Colin had worked for TSR uh-huh. and you know, I would give him shit about the complete book of elves okay. and um, <laughs> like, and smart, you know, even them being a, a smart ass. Yeah, and, yeah. um, but you know, like, and, and yeah, we would just start talking about yep. stuff and he just realized like, whoa, this you guy know, really knows a yeah, lot about this stuff. stuff. Yeah. And, okay. and so for a really, really rules, uh, heavy dungeon crawler, like Icewind Dale, sure. I think I'm like, wow, this like, at least this guy really knows the material very well. Yeah. Even if maybe my design instincts were garbage, mm-hmm. um, they're like, well, at the very least he understands the setting and the yeah. rules and everything. Okay. Okay, cool. So you got to work as a junior designer on yep. Maxwell Dale. And what, what did that entail? What were you in charge of? So um, here's what's really crazy about Icewind Dale. We had no leads. Oh, okay. There was no lead designer. There was no lead designer. There was no lead. There were no lead. There was no lead programmer. There was no creative director or anyone? Like, nope. Okay. There was Chris Parker who was keeping things on schedule. Sure. There's a producer. There's a producer. Okay. And... Uh, we, Did they just chop up the world and like hand it out to people? Or? Yeah, like uh, yeah, he you know he's like Josh. You work on Crestlock's Tomb and Dragon's Eye and Lower Dorn's Deep. Uh, Steve Bacchus, you work on uh, the Tomb of the Forgotten God and uh-huh. this and this. John Diley, you work on this and this. Roger Arnado, you work on this and this. Guy I mean, one. I guess it's 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 D and D, right? I mean, it's obviously, yeah. you don't just. It's not like that simple. You have to still make choices about how you adapt it. But oh like, yeah, of course. But it's not like you guys are inventing. You're not. You're not coming up with something from whole cloth. No, right? and so, we were and we were using the Infinity Engine that yes, that Bioware had already was made. Already going, so, so um, and and when I say juniors, it's not that none of us had experience. Um, I was the least experienced on the team, but uh, most of the other designers had come over. Actually, and that's now that I think about John Diley had. Uh, quite a bit more experience, but he still was not a lead. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Steve Bacchus and those guys, most of their other experience was just working on Torment immediately prior to Icewind Dale. And obviously the focus in Torment is much different than the focus yeah, in Icewind yeah. Dale. But, um, you know, we, yeah, we just kind of did our thing yeah. no, and, we, it, and we talked to each other. And we're like, that like, sounds cool, dude. It seems like a, like the perfect project to start off with because it's, it's focused, right? And yeah, like, there's a it lot was of, a very focused project. there's a lot of stuff that were already determined before the project began, right? Like that's the hard thing about video games usually is yes. like the more unknowns you have to be in the project, right? Yes. And, like, and, and Par- Chris Parker laid it out pretty clearly, like. We are going to make this in 14 months. Okay. It yeah. is going to be a linear dungeon crawler. Yeah. We're not going to have companions. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Yeah. Um, I think the only real technical thing that we did that was new was we increased the size of the character sprites yeah. for monsters that we could have huge beetles and some other stuff. Okay. Um, and that was pretty much it. And then he's like, make D&D dungeons. And so I remember like... All right. So which ones did you do? I did Cresslax Tomb. Okay. Uh, Dragon's Eye. Mm-hmm. And lower Dorn's deep. Okay. Do you want to? Can you talk about like maybe one, sure. of, one of the things you did there? Yeah. That, like, stands um, out? Yeah. Okay. tomb was um, Crestlax's tomb was I think the first one I did. Mm-hmm. I just got a big piece of uh, newsprint paper. Okay. 
like uh, a couple of feet by a couple of feet. And I set it down on a big desk mm -hmm. and I just drew a dungeon. Okay. Like I just drew like, this looks cool. I'm not thinking about, you know, this was more creating than designing. Yes. It was just kind of like, ah, it's like I'm making a D&D &D dungeon. Yeah. I didn't think about isometric angles. I didn't think about pacing and spacing and all that other stuff. Um, and I literally gave that sheet to Dennis Presnell, mm -hmm. who still works at Obsidian, by the way. Um, and he he built a level out. And people were like, wow, this is fucking cramped. Well, built a level out. Does that mean like he did the he, art? He did the background? 3D, yeah. So okay. he did he did he did everything in 3D. Okay. And um and then he gave it to me and I got it in and then I started play, placing monsters and stuff. And it was really hard to see things in it because the hallways were super narrow. Yeah. It was really frustrating to navigate. There's all this other stuff that I didn't get or appreciate at the time that right. were all pretty dumb um and then i did dragon's eye where i think i did you try to redo any of that like did you have a sense that like it was mm. tough or there just wasn't time or um we didn't have time okay and also i didn't really appreciate the extent of the frustration within it because okay. you know when when you play your own stuff you very quickly acclimate and yeah, because you made it you're like fine with it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but with Dragon's Eye, I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make this a little more open because okay. Crosslax was really cramped. Yep. And in my mind, I was like, well, that was cramped by design and that's okay. And it's like, well, this is a bad choice. Um, <laughs> unless you're trying to frustrate people. Right. Um, so Dragon's Eye was more open, but it also was this huge slog. Um, I did have this idea of... Huge slog because there's tons of monsters or It what? goes, well, it's five levels deep. Okay. And there are no shortcuts back out. Okay. Oh, there's one. So you've had to walk. You had to literally walk all the way back out. Yeah. Um, which was not atypical at that time. Yeah. But again, I seem to remember doing some backtracking. There's a lot of backtracking. Icewind Dale. And and the difficulty was fairly high. Um, one thing that I had as a goal in there was that I wanted each because I was like, well, this is going to be five levels of caverns. Mm -hmm. I really want to make sure that each level has its own theme of like what's going on, like its own story and its own um, ecology of critters and creatures and, and little bosses and whatever weird stuff is going on. And some of it's pretty implausible, but um, but they did feel pretty different um, and they played pretty different. Right. And uh, we had Exonomai at the bottom, the six, she was a Merolith demon. Mm -hmm. um, she was very memorable because she was pretty hard. Um, right. And there were lots of, lots of, I did do one thing that <clears throat> I don't think I did as well as I could have, but we're doing it better on Deadfire now. Okay. Which is, um, I tried to make sure that, <clears throat> like, one thing I, I disliked about some of the Infinity Engine games is that traps would be this, like, just this uh, 2D trigger that you had no idea was there unless you, like, literally always, detected it. Yeah, that was, was yeah, It's yeah. frustrating. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm not going to do that. So in Dragon's Eye, what I did is <clears throat> I would look for the darkest parts of the hallway, uh -huh. and I would pick three stones, uh -huh. always three, and I would I would make that the trap trigger. Okay. And every time you and there were a lot of them, but but every time you hit one, if you were paying attention, you'd be like, "This is always in the darkest part of the corridor." Mm. And you know, it probably could have been communicated even better. Sure. But it was pretty consistent, and it did correlate to something physical in the world. Um, and when we made the first Pillars of Eternity, there were more like sort of just arbitrary volumes, sure. which I also didn't like. But there was I didn't we didn't really know a good way around it. And so now for Deadfire, I'm like, if there is a trap trigger, if you are looking with your own eyes for a trap, you should be able to see it. Right. Whether it's a 3D trigger or we actually will say, hey, to a level artist, please go in and discolor this area. And that's the trap trigger so that someone can see it so that you have more of a feeling of like, oh, 
that's probably a trap. Well, let me step around. out for a second. Sure. Because I've never been a big fan of traps. What's the purpose of traps? Like, would the game be worse if traps weren't there? Mm, probably not. Um, it's really a nostalgia thing. Okay. Yeah. It's just because if there weren't traps, people would be like, where's the traps? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, even though I mean, we, I don't know. I mean, I want, maybe you know so much more about RPGs. So I was like, does it, is there something that it serves in the purpose of mechanics? Well, and the so, so I have, I mean, so what I've, something. what I've tried to do mm-hmm. is I have tried to, over time, get traps to, to feel like a more interesting aspect of the game. Okay. So part of that is not making them unavoidable triggers. Yeah. So they become less frustrating, even if they still are less, still don't have value. Um, in Deadfire, um, if you dis if you find and disarm a trap, you will get that trap and you can use it as a consumable. Also, now uh, all traps can also be set off by enemies. Sure. Okay. So if you find you them, them and to... you pull someone across it, they will set them off and they will get insanely fucked up. Right. Okay. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So that that's a thing where I feel like um, because I do think it's a struggle. They they really are honestly we include them for the sake of that they have always been in these sorts of games. Yeah. But that's not a great reason to do it. Yeah, I will assume the basic reason is like we like thieves are cool, but we need something more for but <laughs> for it's, them to do. Basically, that, well, that's less important now because we we divorced, um, right. yeah. you know, that sort of relationship, like the skill class. Yeah. Um, but back then, right? Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, we, we we to justify a thief being here, we need to have traps in a dungeon. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, yeah. why do you have a thief? They're just bad characters. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Interesting. All right. Was there a third? I think you said there was a third area you did too. Yeah, Loradorn's Deep, um, and that area was uh, that 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 got pretty weird. Um, so that was another area that had like it was like five dis- very distinct areas. It was all kind of like underdark. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an area that had lots of lava and fire giants in it and fire salamanders. There was an area that was like a uh, an abandoned sort of underground villa that was occupied by this thief who was a lieutenant of the bad guy um there was a there was a um i guess a series of like um how was the word i'm looking for like botanical garden domes Mm -hmm. that was occupied by this dark elf wizard malavon right um and again it was like i wanted to make each area feel very different and there were like places where umber hulks would like kool-aid man or the wall because i always like the idea of umber hulks just bursting out of things and um, that was also when I started learning about more about like sprite flipping and like you, like making doors that mm-hmm. aren't really doors. They're just flip tiles. Uh-huh. So we would have like a door and when you walk over a trigger, then it flips with a visual effect over it mm-hmm. into a, basically a broken out doorway and, there, and we spawn a number hulk there and they yeah, come yeah. out and attack you. So, um, and that also had a really monstrously difficult... This, this is a place where I started to learn about... Would you say you guys kind of... This project, you kind of guys were like glorified modders in a way, like. Um, I don't think I would take it that far. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm I, trying to find the right way to term it, but it seems like you guys were like very much like we're learning tricks we can pull inside the Infinity Engine, and like that's kind of like a core of like you know this is like one of our best tools to like try and make stuff happen. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know for certain what the the pipeline was. Well, I was also writing dialogue for all these things as yeah, well. Yeah. Um. But I mean, we were using all of Bioware's tools. I think that our workflow is pretty similar to Bioware's. Yeah. So, um, no, I, I mean, there are aspects to it that felt kind of moddy because we just didn't understand how the engine worked. So yeah. we would do these kind of torturously weird workarounds. Um, but I was going to say with Loradorn's Deep, I mm-hmm. had this really difficult fight at the end. Mm-hmm. 
with a brother per diem and a bunch of crazy priests and mummies mm-hmm. and this thing called the idol, which was like this dragon head statue. Right. And um, I was a crazy diehard D&D player. And so the later in the game that we got, the crazier my combat scenarios got. Mm-hmm. And because I was used to playing with players and DMs that were ruthlessly like rule savvy. Yeah. And so the threats that they posed were, you know, lethal and you had to really be on top of everything. And I remember a, a, a QA tester came up to Black Isle and he was literally like, I, I don't know if he, you would say he was shouting, but he was definitely on the edge of shouting. He was so angry. Mm. And he's like, I have been trying to get through this idle fight for two and a half hours. <laughs> this is the dumb, like, this is the stupidest fight. Like, why would you design this? And I'm mm. like, I don't think it's that hard. And I turned to uh, my office mate at the time, Keon Pak, and I was like, Keon, you got through, you did that fight, right? And he was like, yeah, it was no problem. But Keon also is this like insane min-maxer. Mm. So he, and he was like, well, how many tries did it take you when you did it? And I'm like, the first try. Uh-huh. And he was like, that is impossible. He said, I do not believe you. I think you were lying to me. And I'm like, I'll do it right now. <laughs> okay. And so I loaded it had up. You, had you done it on your oh, yeah. right? Okay, all right. And so I loaded it up and I was in the, I was in the area immediately adjacent uh-huh. to there. And I got my guys and I started pre-buffing. Yeah. And he goes, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm pre-buffing. And it was going on for like five or six rounds. He yeah. was like, what? Stop, stop. Like, what are you, what, is, what is all this stuff? And I'm like, yeah. I cast this spell first because it has the longest duration. Yeah. Then I cast this and then I cast this and then I cast these last ones last because they have the shortest duration and then I immediately transition. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, do you do that before every fight? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, that is crazy. He's like, why would anyone do that? I'm like, oh, watch this. And I just like... <laughs> Within 15 seconds, I had annihilated the entire room. And I'm like, yeah, because that's pre-buffing. And to me, that's just the way you played the game. Right. And But then I started to realize like, oh, crap. Right. Um, And as we did the expansion, Heart of Winter, that divide grew even more. There were some testers who were like, oh, yeah, Burial Isle? That's no problem. And then I would watch them. Very important thing. Watch how they played. And I'm like, oh, they play like me. These guys are all pre-buffing. They're all like doing all these counters and everything. And these other half of players are just getting to my, like they literally can't get like 20 feet into the island without getting destroyed. So I started to go like, okay, maybe I need to start questioning why, what role this serves and how it separates people and all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I've, I've run to this issue a couple of times with RPGs where like, you know, you basically, you get as far as you can get. And then suddenly you get to a point where you have to kind of realize that like, okay, there's something, there's another step involved here. Yeah. It often is, buffing your guys before you you go into combat. And I feel like it's been, RPGs have a very hard time communicating to you that this is what you need to do. Yeah. Right. And I I mean, how did your thinking about, how's your thinking about this evolved over the years? Like, Um, I mean, I think that, I think that if you do pre-buffing, there are a couple things that are important. One is that you need to bound the, you need to bound the upper end of power that you get from pre-buffing mm-hmm. <laughs> so that it is not like second edition D&D. I worked it out on paper. You can like quintuple your party's damage output at about mm-hmm. 10th level. If you spend five or six rounds pre-buffing with a wizard and a priest. Right. I mean, quintupling like that's absurd. Uh, nothing can be balanced around that. But if you look at the margin of like survivability, damage output, all this other stuff, and you say like the margin is 
a 10% or a 15% increase, then maybe that's okay. Um, if you even want to support pre-buffing at all. Um, in pillars, there are a ton of spells that we say, this is combat only. You can only, like, anything that really is a stat boost or a defensive boost or an accuracy, anything like that. Um, we say like, if you're not in combat, you can't cast this. And people yeah. are like, this is dumb. And it's like, dude, it's, it's because if we let you do that, then it becomes Icewind Dale. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's this is a major issue because basically you have to balance the game for two. It's impossible. It's like two yeah. completely different games. Yes, basically. Uh, because the ceiling keeps rising and yeah. the and the, the the status quo stays the same. Yeah, and that is not a place where you want to balance in. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, the more that pre buffing becomes, if you do have any pre buffing, the more that it becomes integral to everyone's gameplay loop, uh, which is one of the things we're doing on Deadfire. So resting, a lot of people didn't like our resting mechanics in, in, in Pillars. So in Deadfire, you can pretty much rest whenever you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just drag food over to change out whatever buff you have. And you have a finite amount of food, uh, except for hardtack, which is sort of unlimited. And that, that doesn't give you any bonuses, but it gives you all your, your um, sort of, you know, all your injuries go away and all that sort of stuff. Right. So it's like, and hardtack is ubiquitous. And right. so we're just like, you can pretty much rest whatever you want. But if you want to be the sort of cagey, you know, more statty person, then you drag the food that has the bonuses you want into that slot and you rest. And that's, that is the food bonus you get until the next time you rest. Mm -hmm. There's, you can only eat one food item at a time. Right. So you can't stack multiple bonuses from them. We are very careful about how big that bonus can be. Uh -huh. <laughs> And we're more likely to have uh, a food item that's better give bon uh, different bonuses rather than higher bonuses. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's the way that we have, like, here's your pre-buffing. It's not the same as chain casting spells for six rounds, yeah. but it's a way where you can strategically say, you know what, I want more, like, I know there's really heavily armored uh, enemies in this area, so I'm going to eat this because it gives me plus one penetration, and that's going to go on my fighter. I need to do more fire damage, so I'm going to eat fire kelp on my wizard. And do 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 do. Right. But that margin is narrow. It makes you feel smart, but like you're not suddenly bowling over right, the world right. with it. It seems like there's another important <laughs> point here, which is that since you've attached it to eating, eating is something everyone's going to do anyway. Yes, you, right. You you basically have to do it when you. So rest. you know you're going to eat, and then you, you know at some point you're going to start looking around at all the different things and like, well, if I'm going to eat, then I might want to might as well think about like what I'm exactly. Eating. Whereas. If it's just like, well, I just got a bunch of potions, right? Like, you know, you'll those just go in a pack. Yeah, it might be the hoarder character who just is never going to eat a, you know, drink a potion the entire game, and like, or there's just the people who don't think about it because they're just playing, right? And they're not like. Well, it's one know. of the reasons why I like, um, you know, the direction that the Soul series went in with a lot of their consumables, where, you know, they're you don't have a ton of like outside of your moves, you don't have a ton of abilities, which is the other thing that in especially in our games, like. Your abilities overshadow almost everything else, yeah. and so your your items are kind of this like second or third tier of stuff that you do uh -huh. after after abilities and after auto attacking, and um, like in the Soul series, you always have the mappings of your consumables right there on the screen with you, and they're really valuable and they're really important. And then something like the I mean, what they realized with the Estus Flask is like get away from the moon grass because that's a, a people get paralyzed, right. And having replenishable consumables is much more encouraging for players because they're like, smoke them if you got them. Like, right, yeah. you better use this Estus flask because you'll die if you don't use it. And this, as soon as you get to a bonfire, it'll completely replenish. It's totally fine. Right. So I think I think that stuff, <clears throat> again, the more you can kind of like narrow 
that spectrum of stuff. And the thing is, like, you know, the Soul series also has, um, you know, you can you can pre-buff with like resin and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But again, that's like that's a single thing yeah. that you do. It's not this like big elaborate when, series of. When you look at it at the highest like abstract level, like what's what what's the role that pre-buffing serves in like the design? I would say that pre-buffing serves as a strategic layer preceding the tactical engagement of the threat ahead of you. Okay. So you you have tactics that you undertake within the combat, mm-hmm. but you being Captain Smarty are like, I think I'm going to need this thing in right. the thing ahead. And I am, hmm. And, and so I will give myself this, this resistance. I will give myself this bonus to penetration. I will give myself this other thing. <clears throat> and it is, a, it is a thing to engage your mind as you're approaching a threat and evaluating a threat that makes you feel like you're making and very often it is an important strategic decision right right okay cool all right so i think we talked about the design work you've done on the uh, iceman dale right so uh there's a short project you guys get out the door like mm-hmm. how, how to do it always the process you know, like how, what do you remember from like shipping it and like getting feedback about the game and like you know what did what were you surprised by that type of stuff um well there are a couple things i remembered looking back at it although i don't think i really appreciated it at the time one was that um so when i was in college i was in a fraternity which might sound a little odd but uh it was a fraternity of musicians physics majors um <laughs> okay uh a lot of gay men uh-huh. and um uh people who played role-playing games and computer games all right and um and so going to black isle was like going to a fraternity sure like well and i should also give uh you know my fraternity was uh like we were pretty laid back like we were known as sort of like the more straight lace like we didn't have open kegger parties and things like that um and so going to black isle was kind of like oh it's a it's a bunch of men yeah (laughs) there are no women developers there dudes Uh, it was a bunch of dudes and they're all into games just like all my fraternity brothers were and and all this other stuff and um and I didn't have a car uh-huh. and I didn't, uh, and I lived very close to work. And there was, uh, toward the end of Icewind Dale, I realized that I had been at work every day for 321 days. Wow. Yeah. And um, it didn't really seem bad to me. Yeah. Like I never, I, I, and I, would, I would not necessarily work long hours on the weekend and sometimes, sometimes honestly, I would come into work and I would do very little work on the weekends. Right. I but didn't just, know what to do if I weren't at work. You just liked being there. I just, just liked being there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were other people that did that as well. I mean, it was it was uh, not uh, not most of the company was there on weekends, but a lot of people were. There were a lot of people that were really working themselves yeah. uh, rough there. Um, but I was I just wanted to make this game, and yeah, I just yeah. I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. And so I do remember going like, oh, this I probably should find something to do <laughs> and I didn't I didn't have um I had made no friends yeah outside of work I, I mean I loved all the guys that I worked with yeah. and that was very cool um I've never been a super uh even now I don't like going to a GDC party is like a uh it's it's not like I, I feel bad about it but it's it's not a natural thing yeah. for me to do um and so you know the idea of like going out on the weekend or even going out on a Friday night I just didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, I grew yeah. up in the country by myself. Uh, well, I mean, with my parents, but like, um, and so the idea of just kind of being at work yeah, yeah, and yeah. Well, working you... and playing tribes and working and playing tribes, like that was just what I did. Well, I can I can one hundred percent relate to that. I mean, that purpose describes my first. 
four or five years of Fraxis, right? And like I was, yeah, my my default on Saturday and Sunday was I don't I don't think I ever did like an entire year where I never <laughs> never did anything besides work. But like my default Saturday and Sunday would be yeah, go in the office because what else, you know? Yeah. Why not? You know I just, I mean? I'm making strategy games for a living, the thing that I love, right? Yeah, and like it didn't it, it didn't cross my mind. Well, and also I lived in Irvine, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there wasn't a ton of stuff to do <laughs> so, anyway. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I think what was, what was cool is, um, well, I thought was cool was that I had helped set up the, I had made the Icewind Dale website mm-hmm. and I had, um, set up our forums and I had moderated our forums. Yeah. And so I had a lot of feedback, you know, like, um, you know, I got a lot of feedback from people and, you know, it was the internet. So it hasn't really changed that much, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got very used early, I, I got very used er, to early on, um, you know, negative, a lot of negative feedback, mm-hmm. some positive feedback, really getting excited about people's sense of discovery of certain things. Um, I got excited about people, uh, arguing about the best, whether it's builds or weapons or, or things like that, uh, when they found secret stuff. Um, you know, I was a little, I was a little bummed because, um, you know, we had made we had made. Well, I I can't actually take credit for any of this because I didn't work. I didn't work on Planescape Torment outside of a web uh, mm-hmm. right. thing. But Black Isle had made this beautiful story based game in yeah. Planescape Torment, and people really poo pooed Icewind Dale because it was very light on story yeah. by design. Like we said, like we're designing this as a very yeah. traditional dungeon crawl, but it didn't have companions. It didn't have any of that stuff, and the story was very linear. And so that bugged me because I was like, look, it's not that I don't want to make games like this, but like this was the game that we were told to make. And so we made it a very traditional linear thing without companions. Um, And so I was like, God, I really like, I hope we do get to work on, you know, a more story-based D&D game in the the future, Uh, which after that project, we, you know, we did did Heart of Winter as an expansion, which was... People didn't like because it was overpriced and too short. And then we did a free expansion after that to make up for it, which yeah. is Trials of Lure Master. But we also started a new internal project um, called uh, FR6, which is Forgotten Realms 6, mm-hmm. uh, which was using our own internal technology and it was going to be a story-based thing. And I went and I was made a lead on that, which mm-hmm. is kind of ludicrous. And I went and just typed and typed and typed and typed and typed. And I went berserk for years designing this uh, ludicrous game. Um, but it was a story-based, party-based, right. like D and D Forgotten Realms game built with our technology and cool. Um, yeah. Well, before we jump to that, let me sure. say that um, so I I played Planescape and I played Icewind Dale and um, Planescape had it just had too much text for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just one of those guys, but I loved Icewind Dale. Oh, great! Um, and it, because I was, uh, it was beyond oh. that. Um, I actually I I only played it multiplayer. Oh, that's um, interesting. And like, I think we were kind of basically like the archetypical perfect case for it because like it was literally there were three other guys, four of us total that mm-hmm. we grew up playing D&D together. Nice. Right. And so every Tuesday we would boot up Icewind Dale and we went through the whole game together. Right. And awesome. It was, it was great. I mean, it was Did like, you actually get through the whole game? Yeah. yeah. Wow. You are maybe the only people in the world. <laughs> Fun fact. Icewind Dale 2 was so long and we were building it so fast that uh, it never actually had a full multiplayer playthrough and testing prior to launch. Wow. Really? Yeah. But I feel like we went ice, went through Icewind Dale 2 as well. Oh, wow. I'm, so then you truly are the... I, I guess. I don't <laughs> the know. champions. I mean, I remember... I mean, you know, obviously it took us probably quite a while, but 
you know, you just keep plugging away at it. And yeah. Like, you know. I think Iceman Dale is, is fairly well suited towards it because it is linear. And yeah. for Because, yeah, man, there are a lot of problems with making a multiplayer story-based RPG like that. Sure. But Icewind Dale was maybe arguably a little more well-suited towards it than Baldur's Gate because it was very, yeah. like, well, we went through momentum-oriented. We went through Baldur's Gate 2 as well. Oh, wow. And that was kind of a mess, right? Because, like... A lot of divergence. A lot of, yeah. And, like, you know, it was hard to, like, completely ignore the story. And, like, some people, you know, like, uh, you know, one guy was like, I want to read this stuff. I'm like, well, no, we kind of need to, like, wait, don't leave the... You know, it was just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was... And, yeah, there was a lot of... Right, there was a lot of divergence. Like, there was... I mean, there was... Which is fine, right? Like, sure. that's what made Baldur's Gate 2 amazing. But, like, of course. it was not built to be like yeah it was it was like it was it was more difficult to play multiplayer yeah yeah whereas Icewind Dale it was like you know you're petting the cat the right way yep right <laughs> like, you know? yep you're designed to just go straight through this yeah and so yeah it worked great it was like exactly the game we Thanks. wanted to play so yeah it was it was it was cool awesome. I mean I there must be other people playing multiplayer I no I mean like, yeah I mean there are it's just it's one of those things where I, the difficulties of making that game in multiplayer and and supporting multiplayer in other games um when we would see the sort of stats on how many people were really playing sure. multiplayer, it made it a, a hard pill to swallow because we're like, man, like I'm sure the people who are playing this are enjoying their time playing it, but most of the people who play it get a few hours in and, and abandon it, yeah. which to be frank is how most people play games period. Like they get yeah. a few hours in and sure. abandon it. Um, but it was just like, man, it really doesn't seem like people it's like, it's like anything you you know, if you say to someone, Hey, would you like this to be multiplayer? Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Because they don't know what the cost of that oh, is. Oh yeah. Looking back, and I think even at the time, because at the time I was a game developer, like I was I was like, I'm kind of amazed they're doing this because I kind of felt like rough. like we were probably fairly unusual. Like the fact we we were, you know, we committed to this thing and we just yeah. kept doing it and we was like, okay, this works great. But I'm like, we knew also that like like RTS games, like developers will tell you this very often that like, yeah, we know people talk about RTS games multiplayer, right? Like that gets a lot of attention, but like that's not the audience. The audience yeah. is single player. Yes. Like, you know, like 80, maybe even 90% of the people are like, they're just playing a single player, right? Yep. And there's a more of an argument for multiplayer in the RTS because like that gets the game attention. And, of like, course, yeah. You know, people see, you know, it's like watching Major League Baseball and then you're gonna like, well, let's let's buy a bat, yeah. let's play in the backyard, right? You well, know? yeah, I mean, w watching someone, watching some people play Icewind Dale multiplayer is not that much different from watching someone play in single player. Yeah, yeah, so it's just not that, there isn't that 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 value, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, right, like it's a D&D &D game, right? Like it's, like it's, it's hard to not, be like we should do the multiplayer but like yeah, yeah i mean it's it's rough it, I, and presumably <laughs> like there was a lot of there was a lot of resources put into it and well i appreciate it <laughs> no problem thank you yeah cool all right well let's talk about the, the next game then i guess okay so that was um <laughs>